Welcome to the podcast, Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast, Under the Stairs, episode number 16. Um, I am your host, as always, Duncan McLeish, and I am joined by a special overseas guest. This is my first guest host since uh, the departure of my former co-host and you know if we're going to kick in I need to I need to find the person who's been on the show almost as much as Graham you know I need a veteran and that veteran would be none other than Jamie Jenkins how are you doing? I am doing well and I am very excited to be here not only to to be uh, once again on the podcast under the stairs which is my home away from home I love going abroad um, but uh, also very excited to be discussing the catalogue that we're discussing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I thought, you know, this has been on my mind for a wee while. Uh, we were talking just slightly off air there, and I was saying that I've had this idea for about two months now, and we're going to be discussing the works of the American director, Jim Mickle. So he has three films thus far in his career, um, but... What we're going to do is we're going to look at his three films, uh, which is 2006, Mulberry Street, uh, 2010's Stakeland, and last year, that was 2013's We Are What We Are, which is a remake. So, Jamie, first thing I've got to ask you is, you know, how are you doing and what have you been up to? Lately, I have been immersed in vaginas as... You might want to clarify that. (laughs) (laughs) I will. I have been having rehearsals for Vagina Monologues, which runs next week. And I'm doing a local production of that, um, wherein all the proceeds will go to Project Safe. Do you guys have Project Safe over there? I don't don't think we do. In fact, I don't actually even think we have the Vagina Monologues over here either. Okay. Well, I mean, I can see that. Uh, Project Safe is is an organization that... Um, basically aids uh, battered women and offers them, you know, it does a lot. It performs a lot of services for battered women. So all of our proceeds are going to go to that. And that's really fun. It's a, it's a fun show. There are some, I always get the depressing pieces. I always get the monologues to open a vein by, but um, (laughs) they swear it's because they love the way I emote. And I'm like, just give me something fun. I can do fun. But uh, there are, it's mostly a really funny, um, uh, it's just, it's an enjoyable show. I have a great time. This is my second time doing it. So um, that's a, that's a hoot. So that's what I've been doing a lot of lately. And uh, mainly, really the only podcast that I've done most um, regularly these days is Devour. Yeah, and that's still yeah. on our, we still do that weekly, but you know, I was I went through a bout where I had the flu and then I had some internet issues and then blah blah blah. But um, <laughs> uh, I'm back to normal now, so I hope to be picking up the pace again because you know me, I can't stand to be still for too long. Yes, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fantastic. I had wondered you because um, the last time I spoke to you, um, I guested on. Devour, which was a great honour. I really enjoyed that show. And um, we're talking about two films, which I also enjoy immensely. But you were still kind of with the flu at that point, And you were having various issues with your connection. Um, 
and I was just like, I, I didn't really get that much of a chance to chat to you. And I kind of come away from it thinking, you know, I've just recorded that show with Jamie and I never really got a chance to ask her how she was getting on or what she'd been up to or anything. So it's, it's good to catch up. Yeah, well, I always love catching up with you. You're one of my favourite people. Oh, you're one of mine as well. <laughs> so this is just a big loving instead of a podcast. It is. So. I, you know, I'm, <laughs> sorry, I'm just going to stop slobbering all over you now. <laughs> Uh, have you been, well, obviously you've been very busy working on um, the Virginia Monologues, but have you had a chance to see anything of merit or worth worth mentioning in the, the horror genre? Um, the only thing that I've really watched um, within the last week is um, Cockneys vs. Zombies. Is that the first time you've seen that? Yes, it was. What, what did you think? I enjoyed it. I, did. I thought it was a lot of fun. I did. It was fun. I love the old people versus zombie angle. That is something <laughs> that you just don't see. And yeah. um, the whole the the whole section where like old man Hamish is running from the zombie, and they're basically going at the same clip because he's using a walker. <laughs> yeah. It is hilarious, and I found it really. I'm just really really enjoyable for that. I don't think it was um, as strong. A comedy essay, Shaun of the Dead. If you're looking yeah. at zombie comedies, um, and it's they're both British, but um, I do think it had a lot of merit and some really funny gags, like the uh, the zombie with the plate, the metal plate in his head. And, yeah. Um, that I mean, it just it was it was really fun. I had a good time. So, and Bricktop, as I. <laughs> <laughs> He'll forever be known as that. He would, that is, yeah, that is. He should just have that emblazoned on his tombstone when he finally goes. That's going to be his name. I honestly can't ever remember his real Alan, Alan Ford. I I, I will assume that's right. <laughs> I think that's right. Um, but yeah, he's Bricktop. Uh, he was he was great. Um, it was fun. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I thought. Um, I thought that like when I watched it at the time, obviously the comparison is always going to be there to Shaun of the Dead, but I thought um, it was a kind of different take on it. It was quite a good idea. I love the fact that it's all done in Cockney slang, pretty much. And um, I mean, Cockney slang is not something that necessarily is big up in Scotland. It's obviously more based around the, the kind of London area, but we're all aware of kind of Cockney slang up here and the fact that they use so many different ways of saying things in the film, that also kind of added a kind of humorous element into it as well. But um, no, I, I mean, it took its time coming out there. I know we had a, a good year in the in the UK before it, it kind of emerged over in the US. I don't even know if you got a cinematic run of it. No, we did not. No, well, at least not anywhere near me. It could have had a limited release, but I don't recall seeing it anywhere or hearing anything about it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good that you watched it, though. I've, um, I've not as much as I would usually watch, uh, to be honest with you. I, I checked out um, Big Bad Wolves, which is a film that has pretty much... Uh, every poster you see now is emblazoned with the fact that Quentin Tarantino thought it was the best film of 2013. Um, and obviously, if, if you have a director of that stature endorsing your film, you should be shoving it on the bottom of every poster that you have. Um, it was a lot of fun, actually, not what I was expecting at all. It's fairly dark. Um, it's an Israeli film, and you know the the subject matter within it is is fairly dark. But there's some real gallows humour through it, which uh, I, I thought was I thought was an excellent film. I wouldn't go as far as as uh, Mr. Tarantino did by saying it was the 
the best film of 2013, but I can see why he enjoyed it as much because it's it kind of plays off a lot of that kind of Tarantino sort of trademarks, you know, the, the things yeah. that he would use in his films. But it's it's certainly worth a watch. Um, last night I checked out the Robocop remake. Oh, how was that? Surprisingly good. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I've spent the last two years um, doing rock and reels, and I think our very first podcast on that um, on that site, one of the very first news stories we ever talked about was the fact that it had been officially confirmed there would be a Robocop remake, and pretty much we went into full geek rage about it. You know, how dare they mess with a film like Robocop if there was one film that didn't need remade it was robocop and all these things how would they carry over the kind of socio-political issues from that film into you know a modern film all all the rest it delivers it's not as good as the first one and i think from my point of view there's nostalgia helps that that first robocop film on quite a bit um but I, i really like it i think it's a really good film this remake's really really fucking good <laughs> so the, oh, the action sequences yeah i think I, th- I think it's going to surprise quite a lot of people um the they kind of pick up like i was saying about the kind of social political issues uh, instead of obviously and there was a lot to do with poverty and apartheid and things like that which were embedded in robocop this one it's more to do with um the the use of drones like and i know that's more an american thing than a uk thing um you know, to to save American soldiers actually going into the field to use drones instead. So instead of sending American troops overseas to secure things, they send robots. Um, and the, the argument's then put forward, if robots are good enough to police the streets in foreign countries, why are they not good enough to police, you know, the streets of America? Because there's some law. <clears throat> and without going too deep into the storyline, basically you have Michael Keaton, who's fantastic in the film. In fact, the casting's brilliant Gary Oldman's excellent in it um, Samuel L. Jackson's fantastic he plays they, they kind of poke fun at Fox News so he's um, almost like a a Bill O'Reilly sort of character in that uh-huh. he's preaching a, a particular agenda which is very much set in, in the direction of he believes robots should be used in the streets but you get the impression that he probably is being paid a lot of money by Michael Keaton um, and basically Michael Keaton wants to put a package, something on the streets um, from a marketing point of view that will allow Americans to get behind having a robot on the streets. And that's that's where it kind of focuses. <sighs> Hugely entertaining. I was I was I was very surprised. I never thought I would say that, but um it's it's one of the better ones. So wow, I think good. I'll look forward to it then. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what you make of it because it's especially, I mean, if you've grown up in that time zone for seeing Robocop when it came out, I mean, it does hold a special place. I don't know anyone, you know, like kind of our age that says they don't like Robocop. You know, it's just universally accepted as, you know, one of these films, it's pretty much, it's grown up with us, so we love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, it was, it was very surprising. Um, what else have I seen? Uh, obviously the three films we're going to talk about uh, today and out with that I don't actually think I've seen that much Ooh. I've been ca- catching up with a lot of oh, oh, are you about to drop a Jamie Jenkins on me I did <laughs> <laughs> oh, how doesn't matter what that. show yeah. <laughs> even take I take my syndrome international look at that <laughs> um, 
Yes, I totally forgot that I could that uh, the, the movies that I watched for Devour were, um, which hasn't come out yet, so you don't know. Um, well, you may know what they were. I don't know, but uh, one was Poltergeist, but the other one was Argento's Dracula. Yes, now th- this is quite interesting because uh, two things that, that kind of struck me about this is one that David has never seen Poltergeist before. Oh my goodness, show. I've been after him to see that movie for two years. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. I don't understand how that's even possible. I don't either. Um, but the, the second thing, <laughs> see, I don't know what bubble he was living in, um, but I'm glad that bubble's been burst. And um, yeah, uh, this this could be probably the most polarizing film of all. Either people seem to really, really love uh, the Argento's Dracula, or people despise it. So, um, I, I, is it too much to ask which way you swing on it, or will I have to wait for the show? No, no, no. I, yeah, I don't care. I know you're going to listen to the show anyway, so yeah, yeah, of course, you better. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I actually I liked it. Did you? The only issue that I had was the PlayStation One level CGI effects, which <laughs> were really bad. I mean, they the wolf in particular, and the, what the hell was with the praying mantis? I don't know, but it there were some things about that. I mean, and it all just boils down to the CGI. Everything else. Yeah. I thought it looked phenomenal other than that. I mean, his color was classic Argento. I even yeah. enjoyed the score, even though um, uh, a lot of people have had issue with the use of the theremin. I thought it was kind of cool. I kind of think it like sort of um, harkens back to older horror films. Yeah. You know, and gives it sort of an eerie... You know, and it is used quite a bit, but I thought it was fun, so I didn't even have a problem with that. I, I really enjoyed. It. I think what I gave it, well, I can't on Netflix give it half points, but my Devour score was three point five. Interesting. Oh, right. I, I, I will need to check it out. Um, it's one of those ones, like I say. I, but I think has it not been? I don't know necessarily if this is right or wrong, but has the film not been around for a while? Has it not taken a while to come out? It, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it has. Um, and yeah. it's on. Well, I don't. You could check uh, UK Netflix. It might be there. It's on our Netflix now. Um, yeah. But um, <laughs> the, and you know all the performances aren't that great. Um, Rutger Hauer sort of gives a long distance. I think he performs by smoke signal. You know, <laughs> or he tied his lines to a. Uh, to the leg of a homing pigeon and sent it in. I mean, it, it goes beyond phoning it in. Like, he really just did not give a damn. Not two fucks were given about doing that role, and it's clear. But even with all of that notwithstanding, I just still enjoyed looking at it. You know, it just, I had a, I had a really good time. Plus, there's this really great scene where Dracula comes in and he walks into this place like a pimp, and he's just, He's just wrecking shit like a boss, and I'm like, ah, that was actually that was really fun. And um, so it does have its issues. Don't get me wrong; it has its issues, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. Fantastic! As like I say, it's, it's on my it's on my radar. Um, it's why these ones that I've been meaning to check out, and uh, no, I'll have to I'll have to now. I mean, that's that's a, a fairly fairly good score from you, which means you know. Me and you tend not to differ that much on films, so I would imagine that I, I, I think I might like this one. Uh, did you like Toad Road? 
I've, I've still to check out Toad Road. I'm um, interested if, to see what you think of that. Um, because I, did you, I'm assuming you, oh, I oh yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've heard. Quoted from it. Yeah. Uh, you quoted me from that episode. Yep. <laughs> so you know how I feel about that film. Um, but yes. I'm the only one. And since then, we've had several listeners weigh in, and it seems to be going back and forth, but staying pretty even. Uh, yeah. so I'd be curious to see what you think about it. It's definitely it's one it's one that's um, especially after I, I tend to like when I listen to podcasts. You know, if if something's universally praised, it tends to not necessarily go straight up to the top of my list. I, I, you know, I feel like that's a safe film. I don't need to check it straight away because you know when I eventually get around to watching it, I know that I'll like it. But if films tend to be quite polarizing amongst the hosts, those ones tend to go quite quick up my list of must-sees, just so I can find out, you know, what my stance on it is. I mean, it was one of the reasons I watched um, High Tension as quick as, 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 quick as I, I did. It had been out for like 10 years or something, <laughs> but I had no, I'd never heard of it before. Um, and then obviously to hear uh, the kind of polarising opinions of you and Bo and David, um, I was like, I need to see this film now. So, um, yeah, no, it's definitely definitely on the list of things to watch. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump out and we're going to come back with a couple of news stories before we tackle our Mickle Marathon. I think that's what we decided to call it, was it? Or yeah. Mickle Mania. <laughs> <laughs> Either or, neither nor. But um, we'll be right back after this. Hey, kids, do you like horror movies? Do you like podcasts? Do you like people called Gil and Roscoe? If you do, you're going to love Gil Gil and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast! Every week, you'll join your hosts Gil and Roscoe, who'll discuss a range of topics, including juice drinks, alcoholic drinks, lollipops, bobby socks, robocop, uncomfortable chairs, Comfortable chairs. It sounds absolutely nothing like our podcast. Um, well, it, it should be a representation of our podcast, so we should start off with the pure cheesy intro and then just uh-huh. be like, actually, no, that, that sounds way too upbeat for us. Yeah. <laughs> we could have some dead classy music in the background and people would think we're really high class gentlemen. We are high class gentlemen. That's just not what our podcast sounds like. Right. So that's Gil and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. Look for us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. You hate the way I wear my clothes You hate my friends and where we go I see you in the shadows You think you know what's best for me You hate everything you see in me Have you looked in a mirror? Hey, just to slide this just anyway You tell me how to live but who asked you anyway? And we're back. So, some new stuff. Not many stories to kind of talk through because there's just not that much that's interesting me this week. But one of the big stories that um, I wanted to discuss, and it's it's fortunate that Jamie's here to discuss with me um, because I think we're both, it's safe to say we're both fans of this film, um, is obviously there has been an update on the Cabal Cut of Nightbreed. So, for those that don't know, who have been living under rocks um, somewhere, um, it was announced at Comic Con that uh, Scream Factory in the, the US, and I still believe there's a distributor to be sorted 
for European and UK release of it, had taken on the project to bring together the cabal cut of Nightbreed, which is the vision of Clive Barker. You know, has the Nightbreed obviously been famously cut by the film company into a film which didn't necessarily um, put over what his vision for the film was. And there's always been the speculation, especially if you read the the short novel, um, as to where certain things had disappeared. Apparently there was going to be more Cronenberg in it, which, Jamie, is never a bad thing, is it? More Cronenberg? No, no. I always encourage more Cronenberg. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's fucking brilliant. Um, so, um, but what I had been hearing was the there had been reviewers that have already seen the Cabal cut, and they had put forward the case that it just seemed too jumbled and it was too long. I think it clocked in about two hours long, which seems fairly long for, for most horror films. Although one of the ones we're going to talk about tonight is not far off two hours. Um, so, yeah, uh, what's happened is uh, Shit Factory have said that that's not going to be the, the case. Um, and they are currently working on bringing, with Clyde Barker's like approval and input, what would be his true vision of it which makes me feel a wee bit more confident um, that they'll only use like correct footage that can be mastered in the right way um, because if you are like myself and I'm a bit tired Jamie but um, I really I, I adore that film and I don't want them to Back release a version of it that you know release a version that's just not that doesn't do it justice. If you're going to put extra things into it, um, and Clyde Barker's going to be involved with it, and they're going to put this new artistic version of it forward, I don't want it to be full of kind of footage which seems amateurish or poorly shot, um, just so they can shove it in to be a finalised version. Do, do you feel the same? I do. This is this is the way I feel about this whole thing. I think that a director's cut of this film makes more sense than anything as far as getting the complete vision that Clive Barker had and for yeah. it to, to make the most sense and to be exactly what was in his head. However, I do wish that what they would do is take the cabal cut, which is basically everything they could find and stick it in there. You know, what they've been showing at festivals and things like that. Uh, I wish what they would do is take that cut and also include it on the release so that yeah. you had both options. Mm-hmm. And I think that the director's cut would be the best thing to watch. But I think that the Cobal cut would be really interesting. And since it has been made available to so many people through the festival circuit, I think that it would be a really cool idea to include it on the definitive Blu-ray release. Definitely. Definitely. It also puts that to bed. As well, you know, that whole issue of, you know, because you can see if they do a, a kind of director's cut and that gets released, there will still be people speculating, the, the ones that haven't seen it, what the Cabal cut looks like. So, yeah, totally like you say, there should be another disc on there that has that version, which he's been doing. The and that does, it puts it to bed. That is, you know, you have access to the full thing. You have access to Clyde Barker's new kind of interpreted vision of it. And if you still want the original, if they can throw the original in there as well, that would be fantastic. Yeah, well, then um, you have the ultimate edition. And yeah. honestly, they could bump up the price on something like that. I mean, that's... Uh, you know, I mean, not so much as like say the um, like the the Blade Runner briefcase kind of thing. Like they wouldn't yeah. they wouldn't put that much effort into it. But it, 
I think that would be something that every fan of the film would want to pick up because you would then have every version, uh, much like well, with the Dawn of the Dead four disc set that yes. you get that yes. had the European cut and the U.S. theatrical cut and the director's cut, and that you know that way you could have everything all at once. And I think that would really be the best way to do it, and that would be that would be something that I definitely would want to own. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So moving on to our next story. So. I have made it no secret on on this show. Anyone that has listened to uh, the podcast Under the Stairs will know um, that I am a huge fan of Ben Wheatley. I think he is. Really, probably... I didn't know that. Yeah, did you not know that? <laughs> He's no, of course one of I them... knew that. You say it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, any chance to drop his name in a conversation, um, <laughs> even where it's not applicable, and I'm doing it. Um, so, you know, <laughs> uh, and Bo so... is too. Bo is a big Ben Wheatley fan. He is. I, I, it's funny because it was interesting hearing him talk about. Recently, I'd mentioned that he'd seen Sightseers, um, and I admit I sent him a private message afterwards saying, "You know, that's you. Your two films in now. You you need to see a field in England because it's the one that seems to be. It's quite funny because um, I did Rock and Reels uh, at the start of the year, and it was uh, it was me uh, the Baz. Um, Dave and Mikey and we were chatting and obviously I'd started off by Sightseers had been shown over the Christmas period on on one of the film channels and um, Dave had seen it and Dave thought it was actually quite interesting didn't he wasn't sure if he actually liked it which is, seems to be the a lot of people are like that with Ben Wheatley they'll finish the film and they'll say you well I don't really know how I feel about it and certainly that's the that's the impression I got from listening to Devourer when all you had seen kill list yeah. was there was a kind of st- like almost like a stunned silence where people actually went you knew oh, what and you I wanted really to talk liked about it. i just don't know exactly what happened but when <laughs> <laughs> as soon as i figure it out i'm sure i'll like it even more <laughs> <laughs> um like we were talking about that and uh like the bass kicked in and he's like no nah, i watched 20 minutes of sightseers and switched off it's a load of rubbish and I was like oh really and he was like that and I'm going to pick a bone with you here right now um, that field in England's nonsense and I was like how can you say that he's like the first 10 minutes take place in a hedge um, which is about right the first I think it's the first 5 minutes is actually set in a hedge and he's like that and it doesn't really go anywhere and I was like well the name of the film is a field in England and the film is set in a field in England so if you didn't really get that from the title I don't know what I can do for you, but it's they're not trying to hide it from you. <laughs> they, they really aren't, and it's an, it's an incredibly trippy film um, that I'm quite interested to see what an American audience thinks of it. Um, it's another film that's kind of very similar to Big Bad Wolves. They've kind of latched onto the fact that Tarantino thought it was his favourite film. Scorsese has seen a field in England, and he thought it was really good. So. I've noticed that the press that's been set up to advertise the film for its release in America, Scorsese's name's been used a lot in that, for obvious reasons. Um, But Ben Wheatley uh, has moved on to his next project. It was... It's going to be maybe not necessarily uh, horror per se, but it it is... uh, It's an adaptation of a Jai G. Ballard novel um, called High Rise. And the big news dropped that, you know, it has landed a fairly big name in actor Tom Hiddleston, who is famous for his portrayal of Loki in Thor. Mm -hmm. And he's now linked to the project, which 
to me is fucking huge news because this is this will be the first film that he's done with what I would now say is a bankable and I, I, I would go as far as A-list. I think um, Tom Hiddleston will be appearing in a lot of things coming up now just because he seems to seems to have that appeal um, mostly because of the, the kind of role he played in the Thor films. It just seems to transcend, you know, he is very English. Um, if you hear him, he's very, very, very English, middle class English, and um, I can see him getting used in a lot more films. So the fact that he's kind of he's linked his name to this project is fantastic because it shows faith in Ben Wheatley as a director. But also, uh, maybe that name might pull more people in to actually see the film. Um, but the synopsis of the film, uh, from what I can gather, I've never read the book. Graham said that Ballard, who he has read quite a lot of, is. Uh, it pretty much writes about the same thing all the time. But uh, the story was published in 1975. The story is set in a high-rise where the occupants gradually divide themselves into class structures and bloody battles break out from floor to floor to gain dominance. So um, it's going to be worked in partnership with Nicholas Roche, who had originally tried to turn the film into you know, tried to create the novel in a film in the 70s. Um, and it seems to have just went kind of all over the place, but now it looks like it's going to happen. So I just wanted to put that out there. I think, yes, Wheatley can do no wrong. Love the man. I think he's a great director. But yeah, Jamie, you definitely need to check out some more of his work. I've I would love conclusion. to. And that sounds really <laughs> intriguing. I'm not familiar with the work, uh, with the source material, but... It sounds fascinating. Speaking about, you know, kind of directors that are, you know, maybe not necessarily in the mainstream yet, but hopefully getting there. One of the the great delights for myself was seeing the film The Battery last year. I thought it was fantastic. It's infamously been used quite a lot in podcasts now, and there's a lot of talk on the festival circuit about this film, and that it was, it made a lot of top ten lists. Um, spectacularly only cost $6,000 to shoot and did not look like it had been shot for $6,000 at all. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people still trying, even though you can buy it for, uh, on the site, I think it's, uh, I think David said it was like $5, $5. in the USA, mm-hmm. which is like £3 over here. It's not a lot of money. Um, you know, I don't know how much of that money was necessarily going back to Jeremy Gardner, the, the guy who is behind it and stars in the film. But huge news dropped. And I think that, that, well, it's uh, just a digital copy, yep. so I imagine he probably gets... All of it, hopefully. All of it. <laughs> oh, no, that, that would be that would be fantastic. Um, well, there's there's been no release on a physical format. Um, and I know I, I had heard a, a conversation with him recently saying he's trying to get a European release sorted at the moment. He's in talks with that. But as always, the USA have beat us to the punch. And you're getting the release before us because Shout Factory has acquired the film rights to release the film on DVD and Blu-ray in the US, which is huge news. Um, and we were talking off-air about Shout Factory or Slash Scream factory um and things i I mean this is obviously a huge step for them as as someone who can benefit from this jamie because unless i get a multi-region player i'm not going to be able to buy it in this format i mean how is it how important is it that a film a micro budget film of the quality of the battery can be picked up by a distributor like uh, shout factory that is insane 
that's the kind of thing. I mean, this is a new filmmaker who is just coming on the scene. His first film, I assume this, this is this his first film? I think he's. I think he may have done other kind of short films, but I don't think anything. On nothing. The level nothing of this scope. Um, yeah. Yeah. To for first of all, for it to make the waves that it has made just uh, across the genre in general is amazing. But then to be picked up by a company like this, who has been renowned recently for the treatment that it's given some of our most favored horror classics. Every horror fan I know geeks out every time Scream Factor is like, oh, we're going to put out a new, like, Ginger Snaps that's coming out. And it's like, woo, yeah. You know, The Howling <laughs> came out, um, Day of the Dead. And, and the list goes on. And every single time they, Night of the Creeps, I mean, every, every single time they mention that they're going to be putting out something, everyone gets really excited about it because they always, they look beautiful. They look amazing. They have um, great artwork and fantastic special features. So if I were going to, if I had found out that this little film of mine that cost $6,000 was being picked up by this company, I think I would faint and die. <laughs> I mean, this is, you could not ask for something better than this right now. I really don't think you could. And um, especially if you are a horror fan, then you should already be aware of who this company is and exactly what they've been doing for the genre and, um, I mean, cause I have certainly appreciated the hell out of all the treatment that they've given uh, their releases. And so it's like, I can't, I can't even imagine what it must feel like. I'm very, I'm very excited for him. I think it's fantastic. You know, I can't, yeah. it's just unreal. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing and I really think it, I really think it deserves it. You know, this is a. This is a good film. It is a solid film and one that I think he put a lot of care into. You can see that. There's a lot of heart behind it. And it has really been sort of picked up on the shoulders of, of horror fans and carried carried around. And, and this, I think, is the like ultimate. I think the, probably the, the best thing you could ask for apart from this is uh, like a, a wide theatrical release. Yeah, yeah. I yep. mean, there's, and I think the thing is as well is, um, I mean, I I follow Scream Factory and Shout Factory on Facebook, and I'm incredibly jealous when when they announce, <laughs> uh, you know, what what films are getting the, the kind of Blu-ray treatment over there. And granted, a lot of the films that they're putting out, I mean, um, I think Ginger Snaps might already be out on Blu-ray over here. Dog Soldier certainly is. Um, so things that Ravenous is as well, I think. Um, so they get they're getting released over there. Maybe. They're accessible to us, but maybe not necessarily accessible to Americans. But I think it's the fact that when they do acquire them to release them, very much like Arrow do over here, they put the work in tracking down people for commentary, you know, the artwork. They always put different artwork in the box for you, so it's interchangeable. Posters where possible. Um, and they really do, they, they, they create the package for the fans um, of the genre, which... I mean, that in itself is fantastic because it's very easy just to release something with a, a £15 or, you know, $15 tagline and have no special features or anything on it um, solely on the basis that people will buy it. And people will buy it, but it's the fact that they're doing that. And it is, like you say, it's like a fairy tale ending for for this guy who yeah. has put something out and, you know, like I said, I said to you earlier on, I've heard him on a podcast talking, he, he still polishes silverware 
um, at a restaurant. That's his job. And to, to now be in a position where his film will be getting released through a company that, that spends spends its time giving, not gifts because you pay for them, but purposely putting out things that fans will appreciate. And, and you know, the scope that, that his film should get from that now with the market machine and all that behind it's fantastic. Really, yeah, really, really good. An, very, very happy for me. It's incredible. And it's going to look amazing. I guarantee you that it will look it, the best that it possibly can. Because that's one yeah. thing. Their releases are phenomenal. They just... Ah, I can't wait to see it. I want to I want to buy it when it comes out. Yeah. Um, I already have it, but I but I want to buy it, <laughs> <You> want it. <laughs> when it comes out because I want to have that. What not only do I want to have that version of it, but I want I you know, I want to show them the support. Definitely. And I Definitely. also really want to to continue to show Shout Factory the support for what they've been doing. You know, and like, yes, we're out here. Yes, we want these. Yes, keep it up. <laughs> because, I mean, like Anchor Bay used to be amazing for stuff like this. You know, you could always yeah. get um, you could always get good quality horror releases from Anchor Bay. And, and um, Blue Underground would bring you stuff that you couldn't get anywhere else. And then um, then it just sort of kind of dwindled. And then. Uh, Screen Factory came along, and well, the, you know, the division Shop Factory, and then the their horror division Screen Factory came along, and then just they're like, "This is how you do it." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they're great. I'm super excited for them. Definitely, and that that will conclude our news. And what you're going to hear now is you're going to hear the trailer for our first film that we're going to discuss in our Mickle Marathon or Mickle Mania. I'm just going to use both of them. Um, and it's, <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Mulberry Street from 2006 so we will be right back after this trailer Do you like movie reviews that are insightful thought provoking and delivered by somebody who's trained to critically dissect every aspect of a motion picture without ever having to use obscenities Then you've got the wrong show Kruger Nation Horror Podcast is ready to feed your slasher movie and exploitation needs There'll be more blood, expletives, and titties than you can shake your grandma's beetle flaps at. Visit www.krugernation.com. now of the attackers eating their victims. As far as we know, the virus has spread through blood and saliva, from infected rats to human hosts. 
And that was the trailer for Mulberry Street. So I'll give you some information on this film. So Mulberry Street came out in 2006. It was directed by Jim Mickle, obviously. Uh, the writers of the film were Nick Dimitri, or Dimitri uh, and Jim Mickle. Um, the film stars Nick Dimitri, Kim Blair, Ron Bryce, Bo Corey, Tim House, Larry Fleischman, another Larry, Larry Medich, Javier Piqueo, um, and I'm going to stop there because there's a lot of other names that I might struggle to pronounce. Um, the storyline for the film uh, is a deadly infection breaks out in Manhattan, causing humans to devolve into bloodthirsty rat creatures. Six recently evicted tenants must survive the night and protect their downtown apartment building as the city quickly spirals out of control. So, um, we'll just go with our guest first, Jamie. Yes. Tell me what you thought of Mulberry Street. Okay. Um, this was the second time that I'd watched it. I watched it the first time when it was initially released. And I was not that crazy about it the first time I saw it. Yeah. I just And I didn't think it was bad or anything. And there were things about it that I did like. But overall, I was like, well, it's okay. you know. And I believe this was one of the After Dark films. Initially. It was, yeah. It, okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And those are always kind of hit or miss for me. Um, but then, so in watching it for this, and I had more recently seen Stakeland and, uh, just, I, I really liked Stakeland. I honestly did not know that it was the same director. Mm-hmm. And so, cause I hadn't thought anything about Mulberry street since back then. So, um, when I went back to watch it, I was like, Oh, well maybe this is, maybe this will be better than I remember. Well, it actually was, it was better than I'd remembered. But there, and so there are a lot of things about it that I do like, but there are a lot of things about it that I don't like. Um, yeah. And I think that it is very much a product of its time. I think that it suffers greatly from um, being made in 2006 because at, at that time uh, it shows uh, in the ever-present green tint, um, the inexplicable oh, yeah. green lighting that is throughout this film that was plagued, that plagued a lot of films back in that time. Also, the uh, the camera work in a lot of way in a lot of I mean, there's some of it is interesting, but most of it is frenetic. And after a while, it tends to get grating and a little bit annoying. Yeah. Um. Uh, and while I still find it interesting that there is no explanation for why any of this is happening, <laughs> I thought when I was watching this last night with Brian, I was like, you know. He's like, they never explain why they turn into rats, do they? And I was like, no. But then Romero never explained why we got zombies. Yeah. And we're okay with that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't think we need it. I, I don't really I don't really care. I mean, and I guess it kind of makes sense that if something like this were happening, especially at such a, such a rate, you know, at which this was happening, you wouldn't have time to figure out the why or the where. Yes. It would just be, it would just sort of be going on before you knew what was going on. So that I'm perfectly willing to accept. Mainly the issues I have are not with the story or with the characters because I enjoy the characters quite a bit. Um, It tends to be with the filmmaking itself, with the technical aspects of it. And so I think that this is, um, and this was his first film, it shows. 
yeah, it, it really, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of warts involved here and things that if you watch his later films, as we will discuss later, he has clearly worked out. So, yeah, definitely. um, but I think that this is definitely the weakest of the three. Yeah. I, I totally, totally agree with that. I think, um, the thing that struck me very much like yourself, I saw a few years ago, um, I saw it in prep for going to see Stakeland at the Dead by Dawn Festival in Edinburgh. And um, when I'd heard, you know, Stakeland was going to be on it, and I did a bit of investigation and found, you know, Jim Meikle's name, I, I tracked down Mulberry Street and I watched it at the time. And I, very much like you said, I wasn't that impressed. And it did kind of, I think it was one of the reasons that when I did watch Stakeland for the first time, it completely blew me away because it was, I had to do a double take, um, even in the opening minutes to say, this looks completely different. You know, there's a, a whole different level of professionalism involved. And that watching this film, um, the, the thing that kind of annoys me the most, and you've already touched upon it, Jamie, is the, the green light. The, the green light is kind of shone on anything to make it look sinister. And it's it's so heavily overused that it's very difficult to look away from it. Um, that, you know... And I can see to an extent, I mean, there's obviously budget constraints on this film, but it just seems to be used unnaturally. And I know it's dealing with an unnatural element in the film and that, you know, it's kind of rat zombies. But it, it just seems to be heavily used throughout the... the the film in places which it just didn't need to be used uh, and I don't know if that's a lack of confidence and things like the makeup um, so if we shine a different colour light it'll look more sinister than what it was or, or whatnot. but it's, it's heavily overused but the film, like you've also said doesn't suffer from poor characters the characters are fantastic um, and I really like it um, as a first film uh, I could see maybe you know, being kind of hesitant watching where he might progress to his next film and like obviously when we go on to talk about you know his involvement in Stakeland there is such a huge jump there that it is quite disorientating to see that this is kind of where he came from because this film isn't remarkable in any way um but no I, I, I do enjoy it but it's just not I'll explain it'll be easier to explain what's kind of wrong with it when we, we we jump into our spoiler section but we do netflix grading on on the podcast under the stairs and uh for those that don't know the netflix grading um it is one hated it two didn't like it three liked it four really liked it and five loved it if you had to grade this film jamie which you do <laughs> what well, what would you grade it i would say this is a probably a solid three i would totally agree with that as well this is a three um i like it there's quite a bit wrong with it um we're obviously we're going to jump on to that um and yeah yeah uh what we'll do is we will announce right now that the following conversation will have spoilers um if you do not know what the the time limits are check out the time coding on our webpage. Um, which is podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and from this point onwards we will be spoiling right Jamie spoil away <laughs> go for it okay this is one little thing and I know that this that this is going to be nitpicking to a lot of people but one thing that is glaring to me it was the first time I watched it and it was even more so this time because I remembered it and I paid attention when 
Casey is coming home and she comes across the bicycle. Yes. She's been walking the whole way because the transit system has been shut down because of the emergency. Well, she has a bag with her. When she comes across the bicycle, she then throws down the bag and she never has it for the rest of the film. She just picks up the bicycle and goes. That yeah. really is a nitpicking thing, I know, but it doesn't make any sense. If you're going to be carrying this bag over miles and miles, why would yeah. you then drop it when you have a mode of transportation? Definitely, definitely. I think <laughs> I don't know if that was maybe a continuity error and later they figured out, oh, she didn't have the bag. Oh, well, I guess she just can't have it now. Um, maybe that was why. But it's the sort of thing that for, you know, I guess anyone who watches a film with to the degree that we do when you're like looking for any little thing, um, it just sticks out and it really bothers me. And so for the rest of the film, I'm like, why doesn't she have her bag? Where did yeah. <laughs> she didn't go? She didn't pick up her bag. That doesn't make any sense. And so it just bugged me through the whole thing. And I know that's silly, but it does. Um, <laughs> it, it really does. Um, and one thing I've noticed about Mikkel at, overall is that he has a really interesting uh, take on the hero. And yes. his heroes are not always very successful. <laughs> and in this film, not at all. They're not yeah. all successful. <laughs> Yeah, and everyone who he, everyone um, whom they attempt to rescue, ends up getting killed, and <laughs> it's in a way it's kind of sad because I really like these characters and I don't want to see them come to a bad end, but everyone does. So it's a very dark, dark film, and uh, even at, even at the end when Casey, who is she, is the lone survivor, really. Well, Casey and Otto, yeah, um, and she has you know she has her father just plummeted off the side of a building um to sacrificing himself once he realized he'd been bitten she has not and yet when the rescuers in the in the yellow suits show up to you know eradicate the problem and save everyone she is then killed <laughs> yeah that's a very Dwayne Jones moment from Night of the Living Dead and yes. perhaps that was perhaps that was his uh maybe it was sort of like an homage to that or um, it was just something that he liked. Maybe he likes um, very dark endings. And so you do get that here. Um, but then we get, I think he has an issue. And this even comes through, I think, in, in at least in We Are What We Are later on. Um, he has a tendency to, just when he gets to the, like, he gets it just right. Like, it's like, here we are, we're at the end, you can stop here. He feels the need to somehow push a little bit farther and what we get then is this sort of dramatic where Casey flops over like the, the edge of the building and she hangs there and she dies and she ends up dropping the robe that the other character had been wearing and it wafts down and then covers her father and this other character at the end and to me that's just a little bit too forced yes you know and I'm like oh you know if you hadn't done that <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of silly. Um, but uh, one thing, a bright spot, I think, is that there is a gay character in this film who yeah. is, is he's, he's gay and that, like he has some, he has, and he has some like, you know, prissy moments, but he is also a fighter. Yes. And I like that. I like the fact that, they, that you have this character who he bakes a cake, you know, and he kind of prisses when he walks a little bit, but when it comes down to it, he will fight. And there's no, he's strong. He's a strong character. And I, I enjoy that. Um, 
you know, I think, oh, Vic, um, another character, the, I think he's the owner of the bar that, um, Kay works in and he, (laughs) you know, he's very successful. He survives the night and then he gets back into the bar and they're all going to escape together. And then he just sort of gets killed. (laughs) Damn it! (laughs) You know, and then Kay and, um, I forget Nick Dimitri's name in this, the main character. Um, but they're they're walking along. They've been battling all night. They've been, you know, they're they're going to make it home, and uh, they're right in the midst of, of of a battle. And his daughter pulls up in the truck, and it's just sort of serendipity that his daughter happens to find him. Yes. And so they take that moment where of that moment of recognition where when she's like, "Get in," and they get in the truck. And she, so she looks over and she realizes that's her father. And she's like, there's that moment there where they just kind of stop. And it's like, holy crap, you're my dad. And I just saved you. <laughs> and then Kay gets ripped out the back of the window. That's it. Yeah. And I'm like, God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> it's not what, not what was it. I mean, that's, that's the thing like you were saying um, is that, and I don't know if, I think to an extent, I do quite like the fact that, you know, like see when you watch horror films in general um, and the hero does manage to save everyone in the end or, you know, or save the majority of the people that he wants to save and all the rest. And we just take that as kind of being, you know, that's what happens in horror films. A hero is saved the day. Or you get the exact opposite of that. You know what I mean? You get this, you know, ultimately whatever happens is futile. What, What I quite like about this film is that there is something kind of realistic about, you know, if you were going to be stuck in a scenario where there is some sort of pandemic around you, which, you know, is creating, like, weird zombie rat things, you know, which, you know, are mom people and not. And, and you were, I mean, like, Nick, Nick Dimitri's character is called Clutch, I've just found out. Um, and he he decides he's going to rescue his, his neighbour, Kay. Um, and he sets off. And it's ludicrous, you know, why would you, why would you leave the quote-unquote security of the building to go to this bar to rescue her. And, you know, he makes his way there, and, you know, and then ultimately she dies. And it's like you say, everyone that seems to try to do something to help people, those people ultimately die. And to me, there is something, and I don't know if it's appealing to me as a pessimist, but there's there is something very almost kind of realistic about that, that ordinary people might not be able to prevail in situations like this. Um, Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I I I quite like that. I think in real, I mean, if you were to, okay, just pretend for a moment that this is a possible situation (laughs) and this sort of thing was going to happen. The reality of it is that most people wouldn't make it. Yes. And I think that by him taking the chance to go out there and be as brave as he was and, and do this daring rescue, it would be, it would be satisfying if it were successful. But at the same time, I do believe, and I agree with you that it is more realistic that it's not. Yes. And it's sort of, while it is very dark and very sad, if you like the characters, which I do, Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, it's, um, it's, you know, it's the reality of probably how it would be. And so in that respect, I do appreciate the fact that middle is not afraid to kill everyone. You know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think that that takes a lot, um, and it's it's brave for a filmmaker, particularly his first time out, to yeah, just say, lot. you know what, nobody makes it. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. 
And so, you know, I do respect the fact that he did that. I find it personally sad just because I had, you know, become really close with those characters and, and, and I enjoyed them. And the two old men, you know, they made it for so long. And then the one guy who's like deaf as a post, he's screaming up, don't go in the hall. Don't go out in the hall. And the old guy's like, I'm gonna go out in the hall. And then, (laughs) and of course they don't make it because of that. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. And I was there though. I was there like, no, don't go in the hall. Don't, he said, don't go in the hall. (laughs) So it engages you and it definitely gets you emotionally involved. So that is a good thing. It it is a, it is a good thing. And it's a good thing that he's not afraid to do it. I don't think that that is, is detrimental at all. I think that it's, it's a good solid choice that he made. I just find it interesting that, um, he tends to that that uh, I think that that really is the way he sort of views things um, as we come to in, in his later films. You'll see that that happens quite a bit. Yeah. Um, the people that he has caused you to have a relationship with in your own mind, the people that you have come close to. He basically says, you know, just because you like them, it doesn't mean they're going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And you do you you do surprisingly I, I mean for for the the very little we know about the individual characters we, you do get behind them and it's funny because I I tend to find that when I, I watch a lot of films which have it was one of the the reasons I really enjoy the battery is generally when I watch films that deal with kind of zombies or or, or on that sort of level um, I tend not to give a damn about the characters because yeah. they're. Yeah, you know, you, there's just there's no incentive for me to care about the characters. You've not really earned the right um, as a filmmaker to make me care about the characters. But for whatever reason in this film, I just care about them. Um, I mean, the the it just seems to have that knack. I mean, I, it was funny. Obviously, I've already mentioned in the previous section how much I dislike the green light. I quite like it as you said at the beginning of the film. I think it's just overused, and I think it's it's these sort of things that, in time, I think Mickles maybe went back and watched this film, and you know maybe dissected where he's went wrong, um, and preps for for his following films, which you know don't have they tend not to play that way too much. Um, I'd I'd said off here to you that I think that you know the green light scenario that we have here, it does have a, a an issue with with lighting um, in Stakeland when it comes to the the lighting of the vampires, especially early early on. But he doesn't play it too much, and I think it's it maybe something he's taken away from this film is he doesn't need to do that to hide the 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 maybe the the lack of budget that he's had on here. I think he shines it too much. Um, I quite like as well just the the general premise. I know we were saying um, you don't really find out why the the rats are you know infected in this way, but you know I quite like the fact that he uses rats. You know because you know rats famously spread the kind of bubonic plague right throughout Europe and all the rest. And you know they're seen as being filthy animals, and they, they seem. Especially when you're talking about um, kind of packed cities where people are crammed in together, um, rats will be there. You know, that's just where. Oh they yeah, well, to. they're famous. New York is famous for its rats. Yeah. yeah. If you spend I, any time at all, when well, you were in New York, did you see any? I didn't. I didn't not see one. <laughs> if you if you spend any time at all in the subway system, which I have, um, uh-huh. you will eventually you're going to see rats. And there are a lot of them and they're there and they, you know, they sort of, um, they've adapted. They, they stay away 
when they need to stay away, but they're still there. They're skulking around. And New York, that's one thing that they have no shortage of is rats. And I think that that's a very clever and uh, totally realistic way to spread something, particularly in yeah. a city like New York. Um, I also want to say, I, I love the fact that you mentioned how you liked the use of the light in the beginning, but you felt yeah. like it was too much. Because, um, and I even stated this to you before we recorded, um, when I was about halfway through this film, I said, you know, this is a lot better than I remember it being the first time I watched it. And yeah. then it was toward, it was from that point on and toward the end that the lighting and the camera use started to annoy me. So yeah. I think that it was, um, in the beginning, it was, it wasn't so bad, but then it was just like, after a while, it gets to be too much. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely has some good points. There's not, it, it's not a, by any stretch of the means bad. No, um, but I think not. that it is clear he has learned from this film. And really that's the best thing that you can hope for as a filmmaker is that you keep getting better. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I mean that, that this would probably be the, the, the best time to cut out on this this particular review because um, we're going to go on and talk about which I, th you know, when you compare this film to Stateland, it's it's honestly like night and day in oh, comparison. I, like I said, I didn't even realise it was the same director. And I, I totally, when I saw Mulberry Street the first time and then went to see Stateland, it was a double take within the first, just the opening shots of that film, I was just like, this and it's not just a production thing just filmmaking in general is just infinitely better so um yeah so mulberry street and we're both giving it three out of five so um if you want to see where uh jim mickle started then mulberry street's the film to do it on and you should go back and check that one out um and you know if you have seen it already and you want to comment comment on our facebook page um if you're not already on our facebook page uh I don't know why you're not. Um, we, we have had quite a few people coming over recently, which is kind of cool, but it's never too late to join our Facebook page. If you go into Facebook, type in the top bar, uh, podcast under the stairs, come across to our closed group. We will add you in and you can tell us what you thought of Mulberry Street or any of the films we're going to discuss. So we're going to finish just now uh, by jumping out and you are going to hear the trailer for our next Jim Mickle film and our Mickle Marathon um, or Mickle Mania and Mickle Mania for some reason it just yeah, I really wish we could just have the, the the voice of the macho man Randy Savage just shouting at Mickle Mania because I think that'd be awesome um, so make it happen people uh, or someone resurrect them can, can we resurrect them? do we have that power Jamie? I don't but I'm sure right, someone right. does. <laughs> if there's someone out there that does, then resurrect them and get them just to say that. And then you can put them back in the ground if you want. Uh, but we're going to jump out. And when we come back, we are going to be discussing 2010's Stake Land. And we will be right back after this trailer. <laughs> shouldn't see. 
I was like any other kid. I didn't believe in the boogeyman. Then the world woke up to a nightmare. Welcome to Stakeland, kid. Get your boots on, your gun's ready. We're gonna put some distance between us and this place. We were on our own now, traveling through a ruined land. We live by his rules, or we die. Or worse, we die and we come back. How many of those things have you killed? Not enough. Like Mr. Says, live free or die trying. Keep your weapons close and ready. What are you gonna do? I wanna kill that thing. Go with God. Lock the door. We're back, and that was the trailer for Stakeland. So, let me give you some information on this film. Obviously, the film was directed by Jim Mickle. The writers, again, were the writing partnership of Nick Dimitri and Jim Mickle. So, the film starred Connor Paolo, or Paolo, or I don't know, as Martin, uh, Gregory Jones as Martin's father, Tracy Hovell as Martin's mother, Nick Dimitri as Mr. James Godwin as Baron Vamp, Tim House as the Sheriff, uh, Stuart Rudin as Pop the Barber, Adam Scarimbolo, if that's how you pronounce that, as Kevin, uh, Kelly McGillis as the sister, and I do love a bit of Kelly McGillis in a film, if I'm being honest, uh, Michael Sever or somebody, Michael Someday is Jebediah, and what I came to the conclusion here, Jamie, just while I'm reading these out, is see if any sort of apocalypse apocalypse or any bad thing is going to happen, you need to distance yourself from anyone named Jebediah. That's never a good thing. Never a good thing. That is a solid suggestion and one that I will keep under advisement. (laughs) Heather Robb plays the screwdriver vamp and Danielle Harris plays Belle. Right, the synopsis for this film is... Martin was a normal teenage boy before the country collapsed into an empty pit of economic and political disaster. A vampire epidemic has swept across what is left of the nation's abandoned towns and cities and it's up to Mr. A death-dealing rogue vampire hunter to get Martin safely north to Canada, the continent's new Eden. Right. So this film came out in 2010, and I'll I'll kick us off on this one. Um, I saw this film at the Dead by Dawn Festival, and this film, I'm just going to say it right up front, completely blew me away. Um, Kind of two reasons it blew me away. One, it was the final film at the the particular event at Dead by Dawn, which... It's a four-day event, but they run this thing called Spawn of Dawn, which is they pick the festival highlights. It's five features and ten shots, and they play them between midnight to midday. So it's a, it's a true test of your metal if you can sit through it. 
and I did. And the film that was shown before Stakeland was Yellow Brick Road, which I fucking despise. Um, mostly because I saw it at six in the morning and it had been the one that had all the all the accolades and all the fancy things written about it and it'd been nominated for this award and nominated for this award and I really, really hated it and I thought, this is, you know, this is the end. <laughs> um, and Stakeland um, just blew me away by how fucking completely different from the, the, the film prior, but just how awesome it was. Um I think that, like we said, the first thing that kind of captures me, and this won't be spoiled, but we'll have a spoiler section, is Jim Mickle comes along leaps and bounds as a director in this one. And obviously the, the, the kind of writing partnership um, of Nick Dimitri and Jim uh, Mickle, you know, it shines through in this one. And uh, obviously Nick Dimitri's once again, one of the central characters, if not the kind of, well, he's in the two central characters in this one. Um playing a completely different role, albeit similar role, to his role as Clutch in Mulberry Street. This film is beautifully shot, and that's the first thing I've got to stress. I think that the... I'd, like we were saying earlier on, I don't know who the director of photography was on this film, but it just looks stunning, the, the landscapes, and they do focus quite a lot on the landscape shots. It's just beautiful scenery, kind of juxtaposed against the, the kind of horrible horrible things that happen in this film. It's funny, the the most recent Grave Shift radio, um, Ryan, John, David and Bo uh, were chatting about Stateland. It was one of the films we were doing and what they had mentioned, and I would have to totally agree with, is that this film makes vampires scary. And it really are. The vampires in this one are pretty fucking horrible. Um, and, you know, vicious as fuck, which we don't see necessarily in a lot of vampire films now. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I didn't think the vampires in Kiss of the Dam were particularly vicious. There are vicious moments. Um, I quite like finding about the humanity of a, a, a vampire in films. I really enjoy that. Um, but every now and again you need a film where vampires are completely badass. And this film ticks that box. Um, the acting is of a really, really good standard. I really like the fact that we have um, Martin's character kind of doing a... a a narration throughout the film. I'm, I really enjoy that. You know, he kind of telling the story of what what has happened. Um, obviously, like I say, Nick Dimitri's character is Mister Brilliant, and it is quite funny that we we have Zombieland and Stakeland out about the same time, and you have this situation where there is an older tougher individual and a younger less experienced individual um, being kind of thrust together and them having to do a, a journey, like a, almost a road trip um, to a place of safety which is, I mean the films are very very similar to that and I don't know what influenced what if there was anything there that there is a distinct you know, comparison, a similarity there, um, obviously the tone's completely different in the films. I think Without once again going into spoilers because we'll do that later on, I think this film is a dramatic step up. Um, and if we are charting the progression of Jim Mickle as a director, this one to me puts him solidly on the map as you know, this is an interesting new horror director that you should be taking note of now because great things are going to come from him. What do you think, Jamie? All of the above is true. With the exception that I did not see, I did not see it at Dead by Dawn. But, 
this, I mean, like I stated before, uh, I had no idea this was the same director. And I think if you watch these two films, particularly in close proximity, you will feel, you will be like, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is really the same guy in the span of four years, his ability to work a camera or to, to just his, everything has improved immensely. Like this time he knows how to just let the camera go and let you watch, which is something that I particularly enjoy. But I also love the scope of this film. I love, I love post-apocalyptic films, period. Yeah. And I particularly love it when there's a quest or when someone's trying to make it across the country and you get sort of, you then get to take in exactly how big this thing has gotten and exactly how bad it is. And, um, there are a lot of things that we touch on here, which I enjoy. So there's not only the vampires, but then, you know, there's like warnings of cannibalism, um, throughout, which is something that post-apocalyptic films have in recent years have really begun to focus on, like with the road and things like that. Definitely. And I think yeah. it's a very real threat that would come about because, you know, in general, people are assholes and <laughs> frequently you have to watch out for, you know, your other, your fellow human beings more so than even the threat that you have. I mean, vampires, after all, they go to sleep in the daytime. Yes. So you have the daytime to live and do and get all the things done that you need to do. Whereas like if it were a zombie apocalypse, you'd have to be constantly vigilant in this, you sort of get a break. I mean, you have to lock everything down and be safe at night, but you do have the daytime to live, to, uh, to attempt to live as normal a life as possible. But then you have to watch out for the crazy people. Um, <laughs> so you're never really safe, but I like that. I, I, I really like the way that they, that he approached that in this film. Visually, it is amazing. I really enjoy the effects in this film. I do think that, uh, some of the va <laughs> the vampires are kind of messy. Yeah. And it's difficult at times to really get a hold on what they actually look like because it's just a, some of them just look like they've been pummeled in the face. Um, <laughs> you know, like they're bloody pulp and um, are kind of reminiscent of something that Sam Raimi would have thrown at you in Evil Dead. Um, yes. But overall, I mean, the there are some amazing shots of the countryside that it's just it, like in the very opening, you see, wow, that is beautiful. And the characters, once again, that is something that I don't think he ever has a problem with. Definitely. And uh, his characters are strong and you, you immediately are with them. You want to be with them. They're really, Mr. is probably one of the, the most fascinating characters I've seen in a very long time. Or he's like, he's right up there. Um, yeah. And I immediately like him. I like his style. I like his his views. I like everything about him. I think if this were something that were happening, he'd be the kind of guy that I would want to be around. And um, so, yeah, again, the characters are really strong. So this one, whereas Mulberry Street had, you know, a fun story, even if it did, wasn't completely sensible um but this one is still a little magical in that sense i mean it, this is a supernatural thing it's not something that 
Um, we're like, oh, look out for those vampires on a daily basis. We don't do that. But yeah. it's, you know, in this world you do. The characters, again, really strong. The story is really strong. And this one also has the benefit of beautiful camera work. And uh, it is just, in, in far of, in, as far as looks go, it is miles ahead of his previous film. So this is, it's stunning. It really is in, in every sense of that word. It's stunning looking, but at the same time, I think it actually stuns you once you, if you watch Mulberry Street and then you watch yes. this film right behind it, it's like you've been slapped in the face because his, his, uh, he has improved leaps and bounds. Yeah, it's a, the, a, like I say, it's a night and day sort of situation or, and a comparison. Um, so what we'll do, because I really want to spoil this film, so <laughs> what we'll do is we will grade it using the same, obviously we're still doing Netflix grading here. So, Jamie, what's your grading for this film? This one is a four. I would slightly go higher than you. I'd give it a 4.5. Well, can we? Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't realize um, I'm actually meant to Oh, yes, you here. can do points. If we can yeah, do point. half grades, I would say 4.5. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely can do half grades on here. You can do three quarters if you want. <laughs> you can go as far into the decimal system as you want, as long as you're not making it. I, I draw the limit at two figures after. Four point so. three 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 three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, then, and I would agree that this is a four point five. I definitely. I am just. I love it. It's great. Yeah. I mean, but there yeah. are you know, it has enough issue that I can't go five. But definitely. Yeah, so what we'll do is, I'm just announced right now, once again, this is where the spoilers are going to start, so if you want to make sure that, if you haven't seen this film, we don't spoil it for you, check the, the time code listen on the website and jump ahead to when we're talking about we are what we are. So, we're spoiling as of this point. Right, so one of the big things for me about this film, as a negative and uh, it was funny, it was raised on Graveshift Radio as well, is there really isn't... There really isn't a focused villain in this film as such until far towards the end in terms of the resurrection of the Jebediah character. Um, and even then, I, I don't feel that they actually... I would much rather that he'd committed one way or another to this film. I would much rather that he committed that this guy was evil. You know, I, I mean, the first time we meet him, he's not a nice guy. But he comes in a good you know, 35 to 40 minutes into the film um, as a character that we don't like. You know, he's a, quite an evil guy, kind of leading up this this religious sect of fanatics who believe that God has willed these creatures to come down and as such people should not be killing them because God has willed them to be there and these are these people are their servants and all the rest. Um, I would have much rather had, and I know as, to an extent you have to have a villain uh, in a film, I would much rather that he committed one way or another to it. It's one of the things I'm not necessarily happy about in the, this film. Not that I'm saying he's a, he's a bad villain, he's, a, he's an adequate villain, but you tend to find that with these sort of films especially, it it's either all in or all out and I don't think they commit either way. Um the uh, that's like what like I say, one one of the gripes. I would like to put forward that when when you when you first are introduced to Jebediah as a character and he is you, you know, like you were saying, it's one of these things that um if the world breaks down, cannibalism and, you know, people that 
the, the crazies will start to kind of rise to the surface, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, and w- when we find out that, I mean, his son and someone else, uh, another character, have tried to rape uh, Kelly McGillis's character, who's a nun, which just fucking blows my mind. Um, but, you know, <laughs> this is obvious. It's, it's the rule of, you know, the rule of insanity at this point for for that group and you know that's you know just the way they are you know mister takes exception to that he actually says that you know he believes that rapists shouldn't be on the planet and he dispatches both those characters and it just so happens that the one that he throws the the kind of cross-shaped spike into the back uh, doesn't die straight away he kind of lives on um and uh, you know it's jebediah's son and jebediah is the leader of this group of I don't know how we describe them, fanatic loonies. Um, <laughs> nut um, jobs. Yeah, nut jobs, yeah. And um, essentially what what we're given then is, you know, his character has an arc from that point. Um, and I, I quite like him as a baddie. Um, I really like, like you were saying about Mr. as a character, we don't get any backstory on him at all. And I, I find that fascinating because... Once again, as a trope in horror films, if you meet, you, I'd always equate it that um, if you ever watch uh, from *Dust Till Dawn*, and there's that sequence where they have killed the first wave of vampires, and they're all sitting, and you get the backstory of each character like that way, you know, and you find out one of them. One of them fought in some war or whatever, and this is why he's a, a badass, and this is why this guy's a badass, and mm-hmm. you know it goes round all them, and that's typical in a lot of horror films. The the need to explain why someone is a badass, um, or why they they are the way they are, or what has molded them to be the way they are. Um, I like the fact that you don't get that with Mister at all. Mister just is a survivor. That's who he is um, as a character. Um, we don't know why he's seems to be particularly well-trained in fighting and all the rest. We don't need to know that. Um, if anything, the story really is about um, Martin's character. He's the one that's narrating it, and, you know, the fact that Mr. takes him under his wing. I mean, that opening sequence, where, see, when you see Martin's backstory, that is absolutely jaw-droppingly horrific. I mean, not because his family dies, it's the fact that the the camera pans up and shows you a vampire chew, chewing on a baby and then just dropping it to the ground. And you That's that when I knew I was going thud. to love this movie. From that moment, any movie that will kill a baby in the first three minutes in such a horrific way, I'm going to, I'm just, that shows, I, don't, I always admire it when a filmmaker is not afraid to do something like that. Yeah. And, because, um, you know, because that, that really bothers a lot of people. Yes. Um, it doesn't bother me. I, mean, I think it's awesome. So, like, <laughs> like you hear the baby crying and then the baby stops crying. And then you look yeah. up and you just see this vampire just sucking on this baby and it's sort of hanging there. And then it just flops. He just drops it and it flops and yeah. hits the ground. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, that, that right there sets the tone immediately. It tells me this guy is, he's going to, he's not going to be afraid to do anything. Yeah, and if you're starting a film on that level, you know, I mean, what are you going to experience after that? Because it's only going to go... I mean, films don't peak at the start. 
So if this is if this if this is the sort of horrors you're seeing right at the beginning of this film, you re- there's an unsettling feeling of you don't know where this is going to go, um, and the film really does it doesn't shy away from from that at all. We were saying you, it was funny you'd mentioned um, about the the messy looking vampires, and it's as one of the things I maybe kind of downgraded on whilst I think they're they're really they're really vicious, you know, and quite cool. The make on the makeup on them is quite. It's not great. They are like very, very messy looking, strange, strange takes on what a vampire would look like. They're they're almost kind of part vampire, part zombie, in mm-hmm. terms of the, the the kind of decay that's shown on their their, their you know their faces or their bodies. Um, and this is where the I think the clever play of lighting this time works well is that he chooses the way he lights his vampires differently than anything else is shot and. You know, there's there's just enough light to highlight the gruesomeness on their face, but not enough to give you a clear look of what the vampire actually looks like. Um, where in when you're watching Mulberry Street, it's the green light has to be shone on them all the time. You don't get that this time. You know, he controls it, um, and that that to me is one of the big steps up in this film. Um, I love the story. I, I I love the fact that you get Martin's character narrating through it. I quite like films like that. It does feel like you were saying, like films like The Road, which post-apocalyptic. Some you're on someone's journey. Someone has to narrate that for you. So I, I really like that. Um, once again, as the characters, you get behind them straight away. You get behind um, Kelly McGillis's character, and I think she's a a fantastic a fantastic actress anyway. Um, but you really do. Uh, you get behind her. The fact that she she objects to them killing a particular vampire, and um, you know she comes out and shouts. And obviously, on some level, Mister feels a wee bit guilty, so he digs a grave so they can bury the vampire. And then you obviously hear Martin's narration saying, "Well, you know, Mister pulled out the vampire's teeth as trophies, you know, when she was away getting flowers." So you know he's not completely doing things for her. he's still got that in the back of his head but um even daniel harris and i know that you've got a bit of a kind of love hate relationship with with her as an actress i think she turns there's not really in, any love yeah <laughs> i think she turns in a very good performance in this film and i would you know, probably I, argue I will, it's one I of my favorite admit, i will admit that this is probably one of the better performances of hers that i have ever seen yes and i even go so far as to like her character in this film. I mean, I, I just, when I'm watching this, uh, there were only a couple of times that I noticed her eyebrow, eyebrow trying to escape her forehead. <laughs> I, <laughs> I say that in jest, but I really, I did enjoy her performance here. I think that it was, it was delicately done. It she was a likable character and, um, it, you know, the, she did a good job. She did. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I've obviously been monopolising this conversation here. Um, Spoiler tags are up, Jamie. Go for it. Well, um, it's interesting that you should bring up the nun or the one vampire that um, that Kelly McGillis, you know, is affected by when he's killing her. That's the specific vampire that I was referring to when I said that it reminds me of something that Sam Raimi would throw at you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it just that vampire is a mess. I mean, <laughs> she recognizes it as a person that she knows, and I don't know how, because I'm looking at it. I'm like, that's a woman. I can't even tell. I can't even tell the gender, much less who it is. But um, 
you know, that one's really messy looking and you don't ever get a good, really solid look at her when they're in battle. But then yeah. they'll have, uh, you know, other examples where another moment that I really enjoy is when they, uh, the three of them come to a house and they sort of go through the house and they see there's a man who has committed suicide in the bathtub, which I think is a, is a, I really like that moment. And yes. they're just checking out the house just to see what's around. There's a one, there's a guy that's dead on the sofa. They go into a bathroom. There's a guy that's killed himself in the bathroom. And then later on, Martin is upstairs in the attic looking around and he comes across this girl sleeping, um, sort of like in a, in a bookcase or whatever, uh, under a shelf. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that she's a vampire or a scamp, which I think is a cute little clever name yeah. for a child vampire. But then we get this moment where she just comes downstairs. You know, she walks calmly downstairs. She sees Martin. She kind of hops over and she has this really animalistic way that she hops up onto a table and she kind of, she's looking at him and she's kind of sniffing him. She sort of reaches out to touch him. And it's, it's curious. It's like a cat that doesn't know you and is coming up to check you out. And for a moment, you almost think, you know, is she going to be, what's she going to be like? What's she going to do? You know, is she going to attack? Is she going to, she, it's very sympathetic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of an emotional moment because she's young she's just a child. And I mean, she's not a wee child, but you know, she's, she's obviously a kid and uh, Mr. Of course, um, who always has his wits about him. It doesn't allow that to affect his, his decision-making skills at all, which is great. Uh, So I think that's a really powerful moment. Yeah. Um, Kelly McGillis is really great throughout this film. I love that she has been popping up. She shows up again and we are who we are. Yes. Um, yes. And then of course she was in the innkeepers. Mm-hmm. So I really love that she has been showing up in independent horror uh, lately. And a lot of times I think that that's where Hollywood actresses go to die, you know, yeah, not to yeah. die, but to, and, and, and a lot of times, and really throughout history, they've, they've done that. You know, when they get to the point where I guess Hollywood doesn't see them as a viable commodity anymore. Um, that happened with Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. And, you know, it just, even older actors, you know, do that a lot. Like Glenn Ford showed up in Happy Birthday to me. And, and it's just, um, it just happens when actors get older and they aren't, you know, no, they're no longer seen as, as, box office royalty, they then frequently end up doing horror films because horror fans are typically film fans in general. And we, we maintain a great appreciation for actors and we love to see them like with Jessica Lange and how she has been embraced in an American horror story. It's, we tend to embrace these people, these actors, and we're like, yes, come back to work. We love you. We miss you. Come back to where you can be appreciated. So I love the fact that she's working as much as she is. And there's no reason in the world that she shouldn't be because she's fantastic. Definitely, definitely. And her character in this film is it's so touching. And she's a good person. But at one point uh, in the cornfield, she's like – she actually screams at a vampire and she's like, yo fuckers, you know, (laughs) I'm like, wow, that nun just said fuckers. That's awesome. (laughs) And then tragically we lose her as we then later on lose Danielle Harris. 
Yeah. Uh, because Mikkel has this thing about his character, about his heroes. They can't save everyone. And yeah. frequently the people they set out to save just don't make it. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And uh, I guess um, if you ever are in a situation, a harrowing situation, and you see Nick Dimitri coming for you, don't go with him. Because it's yeah. not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, now this is... Um, I just love everything, everything about this film. It, I, I did say it had some issues. One of that, that is probably the look of the vampires. I think are yeah. kind of sketchy. They're not always consistent. Uh, there was one time uh, when Mister is dumped on the side of the road and, and sort of left as vampire bait by Jebediah. Yes. And there's all these vampires around him. There's one of those vampires that is clearly wearing a facial appliance. Yeah, I mean, you can yeah. see the scene where the appliance ends and his own face begins. So we have some kind of spotty looks in the vampires, and which is probably you know budgetary constraint, you know, and yeah. I can't really blame it for that. And I'm not going to say that that takes me out of the film because it doesn't. You know, it really doesn't. I still enjoy the vast majority of the effects of the effects in this film. I really like the way that Jebediah looks at the end when we get oh, down yeah. to, to the big battle and he's got all the veins running under the skin through his bald head. I think yes. it gives him a really sinister look. The one thing, the one issue I have with that, with him in the end, is I feel like he's dispatched a little too quickly for my taste. You know, this is what, I, yeah, this is what I'm saying that they don't really give you. That's my big gripe um, overall is that, you know, he's a villain. He's a bad villain. You know, he's like, he is your, your main villain. He comes the in a nemesis. bit later on. He is the nemesis of the film. And it just seems. And we, we know that, you know, uh, Mr. is a complete badass. You know, we, we know that. And, you know, we, we know that he's training up Martin to be a complete badass in the film as well. But that whole thing, that to me, is almost anti climactic. Um, oh yeah. You know, it's it, you know it's building up to this this glorious kind of crescendo on the screen of you know of, of violence, and it's over far too quick. And it, you know, it just kind of feels. This is what I'm saying. I, I think that you either commit to it and you give us what we want, um, or or you you just don't go down that road at all. And that's that to me is one of the the overall sort of feelings. But then again, I don't know if once again that's Michael Putney's He's kind of not realistic cat because once again we're dealing with vampires or but but maybe people that are comp- you know maybe things like that do happen. It's the it's the old um, it's the old Indiana Jones thing where <laughs> the, the guy comes out with the swords and spins it round and Indy has a gun and shoots him. Um, you know, yeah, it, but that's is that the sort- ancillary character. You know, that's the that's the ancillary villain, the one that is incidental. Yes. You know, yes. he would never do that with the main villain. It's not just no, going to be no. like you know. Oh, you know, um, yeah, yeah. This I feel I was way it was it was unsat it was it was so fast that it was to the point of unsatisfying definitely, because we've been definitely. following this this battle with the two of them this rivalry throughout. We have seen exactly how much of an asshole Jebediah is, and the fact that he does things just for the sake of being nasty, like when um, they come across the little the group of people and they're having a party and they're actually enjoying life. You know, they're having the dance, you know, they're the music and, and the food and they're having a good time when they, this is when they meet back up with Kelly McGillis' character again. 
And then all of a sudden he come, you know, the, here they come with a helicopter just dropping vamps on, which I think is a really phenomenal scene, by the way. It's oh, just definitely, yeah. We're just being assholes right now. We're just taking vampires and dropping them into you because that's what we do. I love that. I love the pure evilness of that. So then you've got this character who who is with this band of people, and this is exactly how evil they are, and it has been through the entire film. It's been this great buildup of this rivalry between ultimate good and ultimate evil, and then in the end, it's just like it's like blowing out a candle. Yeah. And I'm like, no. You know, it really – at this point, too, Jebediah is – a vampire, but he's not just a vampire. He is a really powerful vampire in that he's got this whole mystical, mystical thing going on where yeah. he's like, you know, I gave my blood willingly. I prayed yes. and God listened and he gave me this power. And yes. I mean, it's, you know, he's, he's like this big deal. He's the boss, you know, at yeah. the end of the video game. And yeah. <laughs> it really takes no time at all for Mr. to just snuff him out. And I'm like, no, yeah. damn it. Even if he could do that, even if he was badass enough to do that, I don't want to see him do that because I've been waiting to watch this guy get his comeuppance. You yeah. know, He's I've done been waiting this entire film. film to yeah. watch him to get what he to reap what he has sown. And I don't mm. feel like he did. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would I totally, totally agree with with that and i think yeah i think as it's like you were saying it's as that as as the the kind of so the other thing as well that um you know mickle does as a as a director um when you were saying in the previous film you know it gives you that one extra shot just a wee bit more yeah. than what he probably should have yes. um and this one he dispatches that he dispatches Jebediah fairly quick and then you get that end sequence um of what happens in the aftermath and stuff like that and we spend a bit too long on that yeah you know i would much rather have seen less time of them meeting up with the new woman and you know mr moving on and leaving uh I was going to say spoiler alert, but we are in the spoiler section. So, um, but yeah, you know, to, to leave uh, Martin's character to to you know go to to uh, New Eden and all the rest, we we get a bit too much of that. Considering mm. we got too little of the, and I don't know, I don't know why he's opted to do that. Um, I agree. I, it I, seems strange. I feel like we don't need to spend as much time with her, you know. And watching him, and I realized that Martin, when he runs out and he dispatches Walter, the guy that she went to high school with, that she has been able, unable to get a clean shot at, and he yes. runs out and does it hand to hand. He, you know, he's doing the thing where he's just trying to impress the girl. Definitely, he's like, "Oh, I'm a badass. I'm going to impress this new girl because she's pretty." And, um, you know, I get that, but I really don't feel like we, at this point, we don't need to spend as much time doing that. It's almost like the movie is starting over again. You know, you mm -hmm. get the very yeah. end where the, the main bad guy is dead. And then all of a sudden you're you're getting into this character and you start to really get into this character. I'm like, wait a minute. Where, why, where are we going now? Because yes. <laughs> we, don't need to, so. we don't need to meet all new people. The, the film has been wrapped up. That is it. You know, we don't. Yeah. And so, yeah, I feel like he goes, uh, he has this tendency to go a little farther than necessary and he, he doesn't quite know when to just end it. Yeah. Yes. But which I is, do, which having is... said that, I do like the fact that he ends it at the border of New Eden, that we have no idea what lies beyond the border 
we don't because there have been tales that you know there is no food there that there is cannibalism yes. there that there's you know and then a lot of people think that it is the place to be uh it is the place that you can flourish and survive so we really don't know what lies beyond the boundary of new eden and so i do like the fact that he just stops it right there and you can fill in however you want yeah yeah it's up to you you've taken the journey you know you 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 finish the story um yeah, I think, like, like we say, in terms of the the jump, and it's funny we 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 should we're talking about you know the 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 kind of ending of that film and being you know as I, I think the only thing I can kind of quantify is that I think on some level I think like the fact that we get that ending and then it does seem like we're getting introduced to a new character and you do you you sit and think to yourself why. Um, why are we starting this journey again? And I, I don't know if that's the, from his point of view. He's portraying that you know this journey will never end. Um, you know the world is a different place now, and it's never going to be the way it was before. And you know, the, especially for the Mister character, um, his uh, there is no, and I want to say there is no happy end, and which isn't. Well, there is no. He has. He's done his part. He's got Martin to someone else, and they're. He thinks they are going to be safe in New Eden. We can only assume. Um, and now he's off to do what we don't know. And it is, it is a very, very kind of strange ending. But at the same time, same time, while we're saying it's that extra shot, there is something quite satisfying about that. That once again, like I say, we don't. We never find out about Mister ever. Um, mm-hmm. Really, we never. We never seem to. It's, the character himself has this kind of impenetrable wall and we as the audience um, never break through that um, and it's funny because when we go to talk to the next film uh, or talk about the next film um, we are what we are that he's once again learned things from Stakeland you know he, he makes makes adjustments because the the thing I think about we are what we are is I don't Think I think he's solved the problem of his ending on this one because I quite like the ending of We Are What We Are and I think he's managed to somehow sort that out. I'm not saying that you know the film's flawless, but um, in fact, is there anything else you want to say? Can we jump on? Shall we jump on and talk about that? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Cool. Right. So uh, before I start jumping ahead of myself, uh, we're going to take a very very short break. So there you go. That's. Um, we seem to be in tandem here with the the scores. That's a four and a half from each of us for Stateland. And I would say if you've not seen this film and you like vampire films, you like something that's a bit scary, um, if you like post-apocalyptic films, if you like just good horror films, then Stateland's on, it should be on your list. Um, If you've not seen it, check it out. Um, And we are going to jump out. You're going to hear the trailer for We Are What We Are and we're going to return to talk about that right after this. Then you come to the right place. My name is Gary and I'm your guide to the Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet! Alright, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. 
Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. And three, be nice. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Sin Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. There's a storm coming. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Something strange this morning. And I believe it's human remains. The storm has washed some bones way down creek. We need to stick together now. There are 30 people missing from this town in the last 20 years. How sure are you, Doc? I'm not. What if we refuse to do it? I can't do this. Your wife suffered from a rare disease. You hungry, Doc? We have plenty. Thank you for the sustenance we receive. world. Blessed are the Lamb, for they are his offering. Amen. And we're back, and that was the trailer for We Are What We Are. So, Let's let's go let's go into this one here by saying this film came out last year, twenty thirteen. Uh, it was directed once again by the man uh, Jim Mickle during our uh, Mickle Marathon or Mickle Mania. Uh, the writers again, uh, Nick Dimitri. Um, obviously, the original screenplay was written by Jorge Michel Grau. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I, I, if it's not, then I apologise. I uh, think it's Jorge. Is it Jorge? He's Spanish. You guys know yeah, these. So. You guys know these um, things. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Jim Mickle. And I, the only other well. film the, that I have seen of his is *Living Dead* at Manchester Morgue. Um, oh, isn't that quite? An, uh, when did that come out? Uh, that's in, that's from the seventies. Yeah, that's a, that's an old film. I remember um, Iris chose it um, when she was on the Halloween special as her film that she has to see on the run up to Halloween. 
She loves that film. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it too. And and it's also known. It has many titles, but so some people may know it as "Let Sleeping Corpses Lie," um, but it is an excellent film. And I had no idea that he was the one that had written the original version of this film. Yeah. So now knowing right. that, uh, I have not seen the original, um, but I will now. I definitely will. Yes. Yeah, and obviously, like I was saying, Jim uh, Mickle obviously was right in there, so the, the partnership between him and Dimitri has continued on. Um, the film stars... Oh, here we go. Uh, <laughs> Cass, Cassie Wesley de Pavia um, as Emma Parker, uh, Laurent Rejo as Hardware Clerk, Julia Garner as Rose Parker, Amber... Childers as Iris Parker, Jack Gore as Rory Parker, Bill Sage as Frank Parker, Kelly McGillis as Marge, um, Wyatt Russell as Deputy Anders, or Deputy Anders, sorry, Michael Parks as Doc Barrow, Anne Marie Lawless as Arlene Stratton, Tracy Hovell as Mrs. Kimball, Nat DeWolf as Mr. Kimball, Nick Dimitri as Sheriff Meeks, and, oh, oh and I could have forget this guy, Larry Fresden. As bearded tenant, uh, oh great! <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty much his every role as bearded weirdo. Um, so the the synopsis for this film: the Parkers, a, reclu- a reclusive family who follow ancient customs, find their secret existence threatened as a torrential downpour moves into their area, forcing daughters Iris and Rose to assume responsibilities beyond those of a typical family. So, I did the last one. Jamie, without spoiling, go for it. What did you like about this film? Everything. (laughs) I, you know, to me, again, this is another clear uh, example of how Mickle continues to progress as a filmmaker. As you'll see, it will reflect in my grade a little bit that I how much I do severely enjoy Stakeland. And so pitting those two against each other is, you know, it's not going to, there's not going to be really a difference, but the, what I find here is that he has gotten his pacing down. And this film is a, I think it, I like to refer to these kind of films as quiet. Um, And that doesn't mean it's slow. That's not, that's not what I mean. What I mean by quiet is that it just sort of, here are these characters, they're presenting themselves, the situation is presenting itself, there's not a lot of crazy action. You know, it's just, you're just watching. And I have been, and what I find when I watched this film was that I was fascinated by the characters, I was fascinated by the setting, I was drawn into the authenticity of this life. This is a very authentic portrayal of like mountain people, you know, <laughs> like, yes. um, uh, like say if you were to go up into the Appalachians, you know, into like a really, a, a really rural mountain area where there's not a lot of money and, um, they're just sort of scratching out a living and one flood comes along and can wipe out the whole town. Like pretty much was going on here. It's, it's, it, it is very authentic. And so, and you do have within those towns, and um, I imagine, and I'm sure you have these kinds of areas there too, but I obviously only know about what's around me, but we have these pockets here where people live and they are 
Uh, it's very isolated. It's very um, just sort of shut off from the rest of everything else. They don't have yeah. a lot of technology. They don't have a lot of uh, a, a lot of interaction with what we consider to be you know, normal society. And the, you know, these are very real places and very real people. And I think that this portrayal of it is dead on. And it sort of uh, it it brings me in from the very moment, from the very opening shot, I was into this film, and it never left me. I I I have heard well, at least one person, Jason said on my Facebook status <laughs> that he thought it was. He's like, you know, don't oversell it. It's boring in some places. It's an okay movie. I completely disagree with everything he had to say. Um, mm-hmm. I don't feel that this film is boring in the least. Never does it bore me. I think it is a quiet film. Like I said, it is a deliberately paced film. It's purposeful. Everything it does is purposeful. And I think the pacing is important for it. It's important for the characters. It's important for you to sort of be immersed in this culture and in this lifestyle. And he does a flawless job with that. He really does. I can't, I don't think you can oversell this film. I will tell you this right now. If I had seen this before the end of last year, it would have made my top 10 list. There is no doubt I in my mind. Definitely agree with that. I, I said, I, I think um, it, would, it would probably have been quite high up my list, actually. Uh, it would have knocked, it would have knocked something off, but it would, have, it would have appeared quite high in my top 10, definitely. Yeah, for sure. And I am. I want to thank you for bringing it to my attention and because oh. <laughs> I don't know if or when I would have seen it if you had not wanted to discuss it for this show. So yes. I, I am in your debt because I, in, I enjoy, I can't even tell you how elated I was with, with how much I enjoyed this film from the characters <laughs> to the story. I, I just thought everything and the acting was, it's incredible. It really is mm-hmm. incredible. The, the cast that he has chosen, of course, we see Nick Dimitri again, and he is a constant in Mickle film, and I like that. And what we see in every film that Mickle has done with with Dimitri is that he is so uh, – he has such range. He can do anything. Yes, definitely. You know, he can be the badass guy who's going to run out into the street and punch rat people in the face. You know, and he can <laughs> he can then be the guy who is – the uh, the vampire killer who's going to run out there, but yet in, in their characters are, are very similar in some ways, but also very different in others. Definitely. And and then he can be this character, which I almost didn't even recognize him. If it hadn't been for the name, I wouldn't. I don't even know how long it would have taken me to recognize that it was the same person. So he has um, he has great range as an actor, and Mickle allows him to use that and. I just applaud that. Plus we have Michael Parks in this one who is always incredible. And I don't think his portrayal in, in, in this film is anything short. It's just, you know, uh, I can't wait. I want to, <laughs> I'm going to shut up now. So you can do some talking because I want to get to the spoilers. So, so <laughs> I'm shutting up. I'm sorry. I'm shutting up. Go. <laughs> yeah. T- t- once again, it, it just seems like me and you are completely on the same wavelength on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think um, Mickle does an absolutely fantastic job. I, right, I, neither one of us has seen the original. We will go and check the original. Um, 
if the original is a patch on this film, then I don't think either one of us are in for a bad watch. <laughs> um, I think it, his character building is just flawless. The, the, the acting from the two girls alone, Rose and Iris, are phenomenal in this. Um, the, the the father figure, um, oh, what's the right? Uh, Frank, uh, who's played by Bill Sage, he is a creepy fucking character. Um, he has such a presence on screen. Um, I, I don't know, it just... I, I found him. I found it very difficult to take my eyes off him, but I didn't really want to watch what he was doing. Um, at the same time, um, once again, we, we mentioned Kelly McGillis comes back and she plays a she plays a really good role in this. Um, so the acting, brilliant character development, brilliant. Um, you were saying as well, it's quite a quiet film. I think the the reason that works is that I think we. I don't think there's any way to watch this film and not know what the twist is, right? I, I really don't. The way the way that, I mean, the, the advertising campaign, and obviously I don't want to go too much in it, just in case you are one of these people that didn't pick up on it. The advertising campaign d- deliberately didn't mention the word, which we will be mentioning quite a lot coming up. Um, but I don't see how you couldn't pick that up. I picked that up pretty quick. Oh, um, yeah. and I'll tell you exactly the moment I picked that up. Um, when we get to get to it, yeah, <laughs> I can't. Um, I love I love the the very very subtle use uh, of the the sim design here. Um, I think it's fantastic. It really does build atmosphere. Um, the shots are beautiful. The location beautiful. Um, I, I love the fact that it is the you know the the rain plays such a heavy part in in the storyline here. Um, really, really like that. Uh, the story, just in general, I th- I found very, very interesting. It's the sort of thing that I would, you know, if this was a book, I would read this book um, because I would feel that, you were saying that, you know, the pacing is, is quiet. It's not slow, it's quiet. And I think, you know, in, in a written form, you... you I mean, you would be compelled to read it. You wouldn't want to put the, the book down. You want to read the next chapter before bed, and you probably end up reading about four or five. Um, whilst there is no big bangs or booms happening on the screen, that you, you're intrigued constantly throughout this film to 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 follow through to see where things are going because there's this really unsettling feeling which kind of flows even in the the most quiet sections. So there's this eerie, unsettling feeling that carries through. Um, I think that, you know, as it stands just now, I think that this, to me, well, I said the previous one puts Jim Mickle on the map as a, you know, a interesting horror director. I think this film, for me, basically builds on that, so he's got the foundations, and this one takes him from being a competent director to being a captivating director. Um, I, I said to you earlier on that if I had to compare this, the two films that I, I brought into the comparison when watching this film were uh, The Frailty, uh, because of the, the kind of overbearing father figure um, and the fact that he has two sons. In the case of this one, he has two daughters. He also has a son, but the son's a minor character in comparison to his two daughters and how he is trying to guide them with his rhetoric. Um, the second film is Stoker because there is that kind of weird, kind of alternative, quite dark, sinister, yet unnerving sort of feeling that I got when I watched the characters in Stoker interact 
together. So I really want to jump into spoilers as well. Um, so we'll grade it, and we're we're gonna. And I can imagine that the, the spoil it's going to be heavily spoiled, folks, when we go to spoilers. So Jamie, give me your grade for We Are What We Are. Hmm. This is actually kind of tough for me. It's At tough first, for I thought me. it was going to be easy. Um, and I was going to just say 4.5. I really am close to just wanting to scream a 5 at this one. I really yeah, am. Well, it's, a, it's a beauty of the Netflix rating. I mean, I know. If, if I love film, it, I love it. You can't tell me. It's I'm a 5. Wrong. So yeah, I mean, five. this yeah. is not. Yeah, it's not technical, and it's not a technical rating. And I, I'm, I go five on this one because I, I saw this film this morning. Um, I've been thinking about it all day. Um, which I think is the the hallmark of a, a an excellent film. I, I loved it. It's five. It's Yay. five for me. Me so, too. <laughs> I, yeah. Ah, uh, I can't tell you. Ah. Uh, yeah. Well, you I, can. You know what? You can, I can't. As a, I'm gonna. So as soon as. Yeah. So, so we're, we're keeping that in mind and keeping things moving here. Uh, once again, check the time code in here. We are going to heavily spoil this film from this point onwards and our spoilers will kick in now. Go for it, Jamie. Okay. Yay. All right. Um, <laughs> the title alone, sort of... Now, I didn't know anything about this film going in. Oh, right. I had heard the title before, but I didn't know anything about it. So the title alone kind of hints at... Um, immediately the first thing I think of was cannibalism. And that's because several years ago, I wrote an article about cannibalistic films and I titled it when you eat what you are. Yes. Which is a take, which is a play on, you know, you are what you eat. Yes. Um, so then as soon as, you know, we are what we are, I was like, huh, well, it's not quite there, but that's, that's just what I thought of immediately. Well, in the very opening scene, we're in a shop, and you see things like uh, the butchering of a pig, or rather the, the cutting up of a pig. You see a man walking by with a pig on his shoulder. Then you see um, a meat grinder grinding meat. And yeah. right when the guy walks by with the pig on his shoulder, I was watching this with Brian, right when the, <laughs> the guy walks by with the pig on his shoulder, Brian goes, that'll do, pig. <laughs> and I said, and I, and immediately the first thing I thought, I didn't say it out loud, but the first thing I thought to myself was, Ooh, I hope it's long pig. <laughs> 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 so, um, I was just like, please let this be a cannibal movie, please. Um, I really have a, an affinity for cannibal films, not, and, and I don't mean like long term, which I do. I, I really enjoy wrong turn, um, mm-hmm. or like Texas chainsaw, which I absolutely enjoy the, but, I prefer, or, or what I really, really enjoy, are the the very realistic, um, the grittier, like in, say, The Road, you know. Um, and what I mentioned yeah. earlier about post-apocalyptic films and cannibalism, things like that. This would be, and what it turns out to be, is sort of a, a rural uh, depiction of a family who has had this tradition for generations. Yes. And... This is the kind of thing that I really wanted it to be. And it, as soon as then Mrs. Parker is leaving the store and she coughs up blood, but before that we kind of see her tremoring a little bit. And I'm like, oh, come on. Um, <laughs> because being – for several reasons. One, I'm a, one, I'm just a flat-out geek. Um, two, I, I watch a lot of horror films. But also I am um, – biology is my everyday thing. I mean that's like – when I'm not doing this, I'm doing biology. So 
I have a real interest in, um, and I specifically work with infectious diseases. <laughs> um, so I have, I have a real interest in anything like that. So I have just done research, whether it was for something I was actually working on or whether it was just for my own bizarre interest <laughs> over the years. And Hulu is a disease that I have found fascinating. Mm-hmm. So when we start to see things like the little hand trimmers or the pill rolling, I'm just like, Oh, this it, that's it. It's cannibals. You know, <laughs> I was all about it. I was like, yes. And then we see that with her. And then later on, we are introduced to Mr. Parker, and he, he's, he is uh, exhibiting some of the same symptoms. Yes. And uh, so I don't feel like this is a film that attempts to pull this to pull the wool over your eyes. They yeah. never outright say the term. I mean, they do later on, but in the you know throughout the vast majority of the film, no one outright says the word cannibal. No, no one they don't. actually says yeah. we're going to eat people now, um, but it's very subtle, and so so that if you if you have enough knowledge or interest in this sort of thing, you will pick up on it very quickly, like almost immediately. If you don't, you may not, but then you get the enjoyment of discovering what's happening along with the doctor character played by Michael Parks that I love, you know, he, um, he's got those great moments where he, uh, his dog finds the bone and yes. he immediately recognizes it as a human bone. So then he takes it to the sheriff and then he does his own research. And I, you know, for like two seconds, I thought we were going to get a microfiche moment. I was really excited. I was <laughs> like, please go to the library. Um, <laughs> but he didn't. Uh, but then, so I'm watching the whole thing, and as I'm watching his character, I mean, like, you know, I know what's going on, and, and I think that this film expects you to know what's going on. I don't think they're trying to, like, levy a big twist on you at the end and blow you away like a Shyamalan thing, you know? Yeah. And so I can, I'm not going to say, well, you know, they tried to trick us, but it was, you know, it was really predictable. I don't think they were. I think that they fully expect you to, to know what's happening that, um, but the characters don't, you know, the doctor character doesn't. And so we're watching, we're just having, we just happen to be going along with him as he's making his discoveries. Mm -hmm. I like Mm -hmm. that. You know, I like the fact that they don't flat out tell you, but at the same time, they're not trying to hide anything from you. They just sort of, it's there. You know, and if you pick up on it, you do. And if you don't, it's not going to ruin anything. You'll figure it all out later. But that's what I love about the presentation of this of the subject matter as a whole in this film is is the the approach that Mickle took toward revealing what was happening. I think, and then I think the pacing, like I was mentioning earlier, is very purposeful. And I think they go hand in hand, and it is yeah. a beautiful symmetry. And um, they work very well together. It's almost like like a symphony in a way. I mean, I don't mean to be blowing rainbows up this film's ass as much as it sounds like <laughs> I am. I mean, I, mean, I hate to just be like, oh, my God, over any movie, you know. Um, <laughs> but the fact is that I was wrapped when I was watching this. I'm just, you couldn't tear me away from it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be torn away from it. I was enjoying it. I was enjoying watching the whole thing unfold. So 
I guess that's my take on it as all is it, it just, I think everything came into play beautifully. It worked so well together and uh, it was so, it was subtle, but at the same time, very clear. I really feel like he is coming into being such an incredible filmmaker. And if he continues to progress in, in the manner in which he has progressed over these past three films, there's going to be no stopping this guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's unreal. Totally, totally. Um, I think uh, the thing that kind of struck me, obviously, like we were saying before that we can now see cannibals. Yay. Um, so, <laughs> but like you say, um, there's that, 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 that to me, uh, the, the marketing campaign for this, because I covered when the trailer dropped for this film, um, I do a section on, I do the new section on the Rock and Reels podcast. And what I always try and do is um, we do music news and then we do movie news, like separate. And in the movie news, I always pick, obviously we're dealing with conventional movies, the blockbusters, uh, films that are coming up and all the rest. I always try and pick an indie film of some description. It just so happens that it tends to be a horror film because I pick the stories. And um, we we play the trailers and all the guys get a chance to see them and I get their impressions, you know, kind of almost straight away impressions. What did you think of this trailer? Um, and this happened to come up months ago. I mean, we're probably talking last July. Um, and so I, I asked them to check it out and and finished and I said, what do you think? And everyone come back to say that it was really quite a creepy trailer, but they didn't really know what was going on. And um, it was me that had said at the time, I was like, that, does anyone get a kind of cannibal feel about this? And as soon as I said that, everyone was like, yeah, that's that's what it is. You know, it wasn't <laughs> instantly on the tip of the tongue, but everyone just thought, you know, as soon as you said that, this is, yeah, there is, maybe that's what it's about. So I kind of went and thinking that was what this film was about. Like you say, pretty quick into the film, it's kind of given away, but we just don't know how the story will play. And I like the fact that, you know, the, the story is basically how the Parkers have existed for generations following. It just so happened that they, they kind of stumbled upon, the father made them eat their uncle. Um, back in the 1700s um, and this has been considered such a, you know, through doing that and then through killing someone else that, you know, the daughter having to, to kill someone else um, and carve up the flesh this has become something which has become almost like a family, a rite of passage, a, a, a ritual that has been passed down generation to generation. And they, they hold this, the original girl's um, diary or, or journal as almost like a Bible to, mm -hmm. to follow. Um, and it's passed down from from mother to daughter, uh, down through the generations. Um, I, I, I really like that idea. Um, I, and we have, we've seen it touched on before with films, like you said before, with like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where, uh, you know, it's the you know, weird family, it's passing down its traditions to its kids and the kids are going to do that. Um, it's the fact that this has spanned so long and it is treated like a religious rite. Um, they are very much thankful to the Lord and all the rest. Um, and this, you know, the, the, the constant coming back to, you know, the, the, the lamb and, and all the rest, you know, th through the dialogue. But I, I really like that idea. And I think what that to me makes it more impactful. It's not just like a quirky thing. This is a belief. And as a result, you do kind of 
sympathise with the, well, you instantly sympathise with the daughters because the daughters are at that age where they are starting to question why the family, and this is not normal, that's, you know, that that comes up that she said, don't you, I think it's um, Rose, or Iris, I think it was Iris actually says to her, that, you know, what do you think it would have been like if it would be normal, and he looks at her as if to say, you know, what's, what is not normal about what we do, you know, it's it's how you grow up, your definition, how you perceive um, the world as being normal is by how you're brought up. Um, if you're brought up a particular way, then that's what's normal to you and everything else is foreign. Um, and it's the fact that the daughters themselves are seen out with that. I really like that concept. And the fact that you can take a concept like that, you know, quite a quite a, a philosophical highbrow concept of that, and then embed it in a really clever cannibalism film blows my mind. That's, you know what I mean? That this, this Like I said, this is a densely packed film that takes its time yes i mean if you're if you're looking for beat on beat action you know this is not the film for you or jump scares or anything like that this is not the film for you if you like horror with a story as you're driven by story and character this is this is up there this is this is the sort of film that as horror fans we are constantly complaining that we do not get it's you know films with well-written characters that are well-rendered that we can sympathize or empathize with that go through ordeals which are horrific and we follow them um and this is genuinely a creepy film. You know, it, it's not a scary film by any stretch of the imagination, but this is a creepy film. This got under my skin. And as as horror fans, uh, we are given so many films where we're given two-dimensional characters that go nowhere, that we don't have any caring about at all. This film, and, and Mikkel shows uh, in his, his body of work that he can do character development very well. Um, this film just takes it to a completely different level. Um, I think the, the standard of acting is phenomenal, um, considering that like our main cast members are, are kids, essentially, um, and they carry it right through. I just think it's a clever, dark, very, very dark film, and I love the fact that things have ran all, you know, all this time in a particular way, and all it takes is the, you know, the heavy downpour of rain and the, the bones from where they've been burying the bodies to start going down the river for things to slowly start to fall apart. Obviously, the mother dying at the start is a pivotal moment where, you know, it, it thrusts the kids into a position where they have to now become the adults. Um, the fact that Iris has to now take on the responsibilities of her mother, which is to kill and prepare the, the the bodies you know the father captures them he brings them back uh, it's the woman's duty to 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 carve up the body and to serve it and all the rest um and you know that puts it in her hands and it's we then have to see how she reacts to it and her sister um, and her sister really is in a lot of respect she is the audience in this film she is the why are we here you know why are we doing this why don't we just get in the van and drive away? You know, go far, far away from... Because that's what we're thinking as the audience. Why Why would you, you know, kill... And you can escape whenever you want, just go. Um, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating film. Um, there are things, like you say, you don't want to be, uh, quote-unquote, sucking the dick of this film all night. <laughs> um, there are a couple of things that I think are maybe a wee bit... I, I don't particularly... 
I, th- I think uh, Nick Dimitri's character is brilliant. Uh, I would like to have seen more of him. He just seems to disappear. As soon as he dismisses the Doctor's kind of claims as, you know, you're... And that's what makes his, the Doctor's character so fascinating, is yeah, he finds the bones and, you know, it's a human bone, right? You know, oh, there's something a wee bit sinister to that. But the fact that his past is his daughter has been kidnapped and ultimately eaten uh, by the Parker yes. family. The moment you know, when lo- he sees oh. the hair class. And yes, and not here. Home exactly that his you know as soon as he discovered that that's what's been going on, you know that that was probably haunting him. Like oh God, what if that happened to her? And yes. then the moment he sees the clasp and the girl's hair, he knows it, and it just the look on his face. Yeah, oh, it's and the, oh man, he wants to. But the thing is, as well, he he still. I mean. There's still a bit... He knows it's happened. He knows it's happened. And he even questions uh, uh, Frank, the you know, the father character. But the, the fact that he is still saying, did you eat my daughter? You know, he wants he wants him to say it. Um, and, I mean, that, that whole ending to that film, I mean, we can obviously spoil the ending of this film. You know, that the Doctor goes up to the house. And we're obviously, we're jumping ahead over things, but the Doctor goes up to the house, confronts the father, pulls a gun on the father... Um, the do- uh, the father has also got the gun. He tries to shoot the doctor. The uh, Iris jumps in the way. She gets clipped by the bullet. Uh, kind of grazes the side of her head. Um, and the doctor shoots Frank's character. He goes down. We think he has been killed because his head bangs quite nast- nastily off the side of a... a-, a- one of the units in the kitchen. So what happens next is um, the doctor goes over to make sure that Iris is okay, um, the father is not dead, he hits him over the head with a pan and goes out chasing after Rose and his son, uh, who have made an escape to Kelly McGillis's trailer. Um, the father shows up, we don't see it, but the implication is that he kills uh, Kelly McGillis's dog with a knife. He then kills oh, Kelly McGillis. That was not okay. Yeah, I, d- I don't like it when dogs die or animals in general I'm not I'm not cool with but the, the fact that we don't see it's alright but we do hear it which isn't all that great um, he then takes his two kids back um, he sits them down to have the food um, now the food's been laced with arsenic um, we've seen that earlier on Rose seems to have cottoned on to this um, she's tried to warn the family earlier on uh, but he sits them all down and as he's consoling each of his kids he goes close to Rose and Rose sinks her teeth violently into the side of his neck. Um, he tries to hit, kind of throw her off, and at that point, Iris stabs um, Frank's hand with a knife, kind of pinning him to the table, and the two of them basically fucking chew lumps out of him um, in a very, very gruesome, gory end um, and keep biting at him animalistically um, before turning round to see that the doctor is... I think, is, is the Doctor still... Did you take away the Doctor was still alive? He was, uh, and I believe... I think what happened is that he was alive, and then once she kind of placed the clasp on him, then you... I, I think I saw him stop breathing at that point. That's what I thought. I thought, like, you know, as soon as he got that, he found peace, so to speak. Right. Um, and then the the next shot we see is of the the daughters and the son driving away in the van, and that's the end of the film. I think, like, see when that ending happened, I was just my jaw was 
open. <laughs> I could not believe... I, and I, I, I didn't know how the film was going to finish. And the fact that we had watched previous Mickle films, it would not have surprised me if the whole family had ate the stew and died. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, I, I completely. It's such a powerful ending and it just floored me. I was... Oh. What did you think, Jamie? I agree. I do feel like... I think that the cannibalization of the father went on for a little bit longer than I would have done it. Yeah, they focused I on I like the fact that that was the way that she attacked him in order to escape. I think that that was sort of poetic when she yeah. lunged for his throat. And then even so, when the other daughter kind of joined in the fight, I do feel like the fact that they just sort of sat on the table and and... <laughs> And, and proceeded to consume him for like a minute after that, and just you know, and then even to go so far as to pick up a little bit of flesh and then put it in their mouth, like oh, don't want to miss a piece. I mean, yeah. I think that was a little much. And again, I think that falls under it's like a it's like a mickleism, you know. It's like where yeah. he just he gets to the point where it's perfect, and then feels the need to go just a little bit farther. And yeah. I think that that sort of suffered a little bit right there. Not enough to ruin the film for me in any way, but I feel like if I had been making the film, I wouldn't have gone that far. Yes. Um, but I just, I just kind of felt like what knowing exactly how disgusted the daughters were with this practice, particularly Rose. Yeah. Um, and she, so much so that she couldn't even bring herself to eat the stew that they had been that they had prepared of the other, of the actual person that they were cannibalizing yes. after they had been fasting for so long. And it had made it very clear that they were very hungry, you know, um, to the point of starving almost that. Um, and so she couldn't bring herself to eat it. I then kind of felt it was a little difficult for me to, <laughs> to swallow, swallow. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that she would, you know, consume as much of her father as she did. However, I feel like he was just trying to make a point there. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't have done it that much. I wouldn't have gone that far. That is really my only gripe with the whole thing. Other than that, I'm very satisfied with how the film ended. Um, I do like the fact that the doctor sort of got a bit of closure yes. and uh, found peace in the end. I feel like he did. I feel like he felt that what he came to do had been done. And he really didn't, I kind of got the impression that, uh, you know, throughout the film, it's never outright said, you know, but you get the impression that he has been really miserable since his daughter was taken or had disappeared. He, you know, he was picking flowers and putting them in her room. Her room was exactly the same as it was. Yes. You know, he'd never altered anything about it. So I sort of get the impression that he didn't really have the desire to go on. And he had his other son, but his son was now dead. And yeah. um, so really there was nothing left for him. So I think that the tie up with his character was very satisfying. And overall, and I like the fact that the children got away. And I, I like to imagine that they got away and are doing okay. Like I, <laughs> I want them to, to recover from this. Yeah. And it's the same way I feel with, see with the end of the woman. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way, even though, uh, you know, the, the woman obviously, spoiler alert, even though we're in the spoiler, but, um, you know, obviously goes off into the woods with the daughter. Um, you you kind of want to feel that, you know, things are going to be okay from now on. Yeah. You know, that's that, that's that chapter finished and, you know, things are going to be better. And I, I kind of felt the same way uh, there. They're driving away and you kind of want to, the same you know, as once again, Mikkel does the same in Stakeland. You don't know what's in New Eden. It does the same here. It finishes the film with them driving away and you, as the audience, decide if they have a happy ending or if the police catch up to them or, or what happens. But, you know, there you go. Yeah. One more thing I want to point out about this film that I really found that stuck out and, and to me was really nice. It was a nice moment was the fact that you don't see there was really no technology yes in this at all at all and and like i said before it's very authentic and I, and i believe it sort of gives it not only an authentic core rural mountain community feel but it also gives it a timeless feel yeah like these this family could easily be the family from the 1700s or you know that I, I get the impression that this family has changed very little over these generations. If yeah. you look at the the clothes that they're wearing when they dress for dinner or they dress for the funeral, you know, um, they're very old fashioned. If you look yeah. at, at the music that the father listens to, is very old fashioned, but I love it. I, it well, in I fact, he's it, playing it on a record player as well. Uh, yes, yeah, and to me, that is a fin- fantastic choice. Um, yeah, that's another also, thing I've noticed throughout is that Mickle's choice of music is pretty consistent throughout yeah. his films, and I think it's always good. Yeah, I was going to um, say you obviously highlight the the technology thing as well. Even even down to subtly things like when the doctor is trying to find out what disease the like he consults books. He could go on Google, you know, if he had a computer and the internet. He could go on these things. No, he consults trusty books and sits down and reads through the book and it's not in that book, so it must be the next book. And that does give... That, like You were saying that you don't... I think the only technology I saw um, is the, the, the very, very minimal use of very old-fashioned mobile phones, flip mobile phones. That, yeah, um, and that's exactly what I was going to say, is the yeah. one time that we get the hint of technology um, is when the son's cell phone goes off and he's already dead, yeah. but Parker has it, and in the drawer where he keeps like all the things that he's kept from people that they've eaten over the years, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all of a sudden the cell phone goes off. It was it was jarring to me because yeah. I had been in this whole world where there was no technology, there was none of this stuff, and then all of a sudden I hear a cell phone, and I was like looking around. I'm like. <laughs> Where's that coming from? You know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then when he picked it up in the film, I was like, "What the hell is he? Did? Why does he have a cell phone?" And it, it took me a moment before I was like, "Oh!" And then we read the message, and I was like, "Oh, right." You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I loved that. Yeah, loved- it's, it's, it's so unusual for for a film to you know to to basically. I mean, but I think that's what will give this film a, almost a timeless feel. I think sometimes that. Over overplaying technology dates a film heavily, um, oh, sure. and w- with with the kind of the 
the way technology advances as quick as it does now, um, a film can be very dated five years on from when it was made. So, you know what I mean? So, oh, look, they're using Nokia phones. <laughs> you know, these sort of things like that. Um, it's really, really, really strange. But, yeah, I mean, it's... I like that as well. I appreciate that in the film. Even even the guns the cops are carrying, they're the old-fashioned kind of style of gun as well. I mean, that's the one thing we never mentioned is obviously the deputy. The, the deputy thinks there may be something wrong and the deputy who we appear to feel there has been some sort of romantic link with him and Iris before. And the assumption is that, um, especially on Rosie's side, um, and on on the deputy's side is that he will one day marry her and they will move somewhere else, um, which is obviously against the father's wishes. And um, as he becomes quite close to discovering uh, the the grisly secret, um, and the 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 daughter plays it off quite well. She says, "Well, there's you know we've got a family graveyard up there, and and you think that maybe the water, the heavy water floods, has been washing the bones down." And he takes them up there, and they they start they start having sex and. That that was a quite a shocking sequence for me. And the father basically bludgeons him to death, um, and I never saw that coming. I knew I knew the father was going to do something, but you and I knew that character couldn't live. But I the, I the way they'd built that scene was the daughter had the, the knife. The daughter lured him out there. You thought the daughter was going to kill him, um, and then the fact that the father shows up to do it, um, it really kind of caught me off guard. Um, but yeah, no, this film to me, um, absolutely loved it. Um, oh, we say there are a couple of gripes. I agree with you. I think that sequence on the the table when the daughters are biting at the father, it goes on too long. Um, I don't know if it's put in there for shock effect um, or, or what. What Mikkel was was trying to convey there. I just thought it was, especially like you say with Rosie's character, it's completely, completely not what that character would do. I could imagine her biting her father in the neck. I can't imagine her then pinning him down and consistently biting him for, for you know, two minutes right. um, while the camera focuses intently on that. Um, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't marry the two ideas up because uh, that's completely against character. Um, and like I say, I would really like to have seen more of um, the sheriff because, but then the sheriff, I think, plays his part to an extent. He, like when the, the couple come in and say the daughter's missing, he basically, like, people go missing. This is the thing. I've got, you know, there's floods here. I, I need to take care of these things. And when the doctor comes back, the doc, uh, to, to mention that he's found a bone, you know, the sheriff dismisses. And you can imagine there's some sort of backstory there of him coming to the sheriff all the time. Uh, you know, what about this? You know, we thought about this for my daughter. And he's just, he just, dismisses it as, you know, here's the doctor back with another one of these crazy theories to try and find his missing daughter who, you know, we've already looked into this case closed sort of thing. And um I, but I, I really like him as an actor and would like to have seen more of him. Um out with that out with that I think this film is it ticks all my boxes and then some. Um <laughs> I think if you if you like films that, you know, rely heavily on character development that um, don't rush. I mean, this one, you get the premise, like we say, pretty quick in this film. And yeah, the film does make you wait for the payoff, so to speak. But it's not, to me, it wasn't boring. I, I was not bored watching this film. I was not captivated. 
Yeah, I, I found my, I found it. I did not like. I say even when the father, who I thought was generally creepy guy, and kudos to him, his his portrayal is fantastic. But he was a creepy guy, and sometimes I didn't want to see what he was going to do on screen. But I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. Um, at the same time, uh, I really didn't I think, want it to end. I was I yeah. could have watched this for longer and been totally happy. What was the running time of? Uh, it's an hour, hour and forty-five minutes. Okay, um, I could have gone a solid two hours and yeah. without without even breathing hard. Which is why I said earlier on when I said that no one wants to see a two-hour horror film. When I was talking about uh, Clive Barker um, and the the Cabal cut, and I was like, oh, we're going to talk about a film. When when I said that earlier on, what I meant by that was this film I could have watched over two hours of and not felt like I was you know or kind of you know, overstayed its welcome. I love the pacing in this film. I think the pacing in itself is one of the reasons this film works. Yeah. Um, I think that's one, it's completely to its strengths and not a detriment at all to it. So, um, yeah, I have nothing else I want to say about this film other than this is a such a high recommendation for me that, and like Jamie said, I kind of gutted that I, I did not see it last year. Um, but yeah, this this to me this to me is the answer to the like like I said last year when people were moaning about remakes, um, we had Evil Dead and Maniac to say no, they can be done and they can be done well. Um, when people start saying there's not enough horror films now with you know with proper character development and you know serious plot. Then this is this is the answer to that question. We are what we are is a fantastic film. Yes. And Anything else? Is. Yep. Sorry, Jimmy. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we're going to do is we're going to jump out, um, and when we come back, we are going to very very quickly close out the show. Um, I'll get opportunity to thank my guest co-host then. So, um, we'll be right back after this. This is Jamie from Devour the Podcast. Do you enjoy horror commentary with straightforward honesty? Oh my god, fuck this movie. Fuck this movie so hard. Oh my goodness, you know, I, halfway through this movie I was just like, let's get this thing going. Fuck this movie. Okay. <laughs> Humor and an obvious passion for the genre. I like the cut of your jib. It's the ceiling, Grandma. Don't make me get out the broom. Oh, your tears are like wine. They used to call that the vapors. Cupcakes are kind of the Schindler's list of desserts. It's it's a, a pure good. I love the idea of up-and-coming horror directors taking on the found footage genre. I really, really like that idea. And that's really the worst thing you can commit as far as filmmaking is concerned, is making a film that's just average. Well, that doesn't really inspire any kind of exactly. discussion, whether it's, you know, to rip it apart or, or praise it. Then you should spend time with David and me. And Bo. As we discuss horror films from old classics. Deep Red. Empire of the Ants. Lisa and the Devil. The Baby. The Toxic Avenger. To new favorites. Absentia. Cabin in the Woods. The Loved Ones. Shadow of Death. VHS. The Woman. Check us out on iTunes or at devourthepodcast.blogspot.com. You're listening to the podcast on the stairs. And welcome back. So you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs, episode number 16, uh, where we've been doing our Mikkel Marathon or Mikkel Mania. And uh, we have discussed the films Mulberry Street, Stakeland, and We Are What We Are. Uh, the grading for these films have been, well, 
spot on for both of us, Jamie. Um, it's almost like podcasting in a mirror. Um, <laughs> we had three uh, for Mulberry, Spe- uh, Mulberry Street, sorry, 4.5 for Stateland and five for We Are What We Are. Thank you very much, Jamie, for coming on the podcast and chatting about these films. I've had a blast. No, well, thank you again for having me. You know, like I said, I always love to be here, and that's true. But particularly with these films, I don't know if there is another person that I could have had discussed these with and have seen more eye to eye. I really appreciate the fact that you just sort of proved me right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to be the validation (laughs) that you require for your your grading. I think um, the thing is as well, I mean... Once again, there's always this worry that the the, the kind of old guard of, of horror directors, I mean, they're getting on now. Um, your classic horror directors are slowly falling by the wayside. And, you know, people look to new people as up-and-coming directors. And obviously, the names are like Ty West, the, I think rightly so, Ty West, you know, is, is at the forefront of kind of modern American horror directors up there and I, I still think I've always said this I still think Eli Roth has has to make that film yet that makes me think he is the guy everyone says he is but I think Jim Mickle should be on everyone's lips I think he's a a talented director who three films in has shown a massive arc and his ability to tell a story on screen um, that his new film which, like I said at the beginning, uh, comes out this year. Um, it's already done very, very well. It opened at Sundance to fantastic reviews. Um, the film is called Cold in July, um, and it will star Michael C. Hall, who played Dexter, for those that don't know, and um, was also in Six Feet Under, which is a programme I totally love. Um, it's based on a Joe R. Lansdale novel um, and I can give you the plot about this film. Um, it's after accidentally killing an unarmed intruder, Richard Dane must contend with the angry man's father, Ben Russell. However, Dane begins to suspect that cop Ray Price may be hiding information from him that would indicate that he was involved in something much more complicated. So, and and in the case of this one, Michael C. Hall will play Richard Dane. So he will, he will play the the man who accidentally kills the intruder. So um, I can't, I can't, I actually can't wait to see this film because, like, and the screenplay was written. Get wait for it by Jim Mickle and. <laughs> Nick, <laughs> Nick comes back, Dimitri, and Nick Dimitri will also star in the film. So, yeah, sold, sold already. Bring it on. Can't wait. Absolutely can't wait. Jim Mickle is, to me, one of the the more interesting kind of up-and-coming horror directors who has uh, God knows how much potential. Like you said, Jamie, I, I genuinely think he's one of these guys that, given enough time, could pretty much cut his teeth on anything. Yeah, he is... This is probably one of the most clear-cut examples I have ever seen of a director just getting better and better with every film. It is clear that he learns from what he does and then uh, goes on to get better. And really, what more can you ask for? You can't ask for anything more in a filmmaker than they try to constantly improve. 
and well, and in yourself too, you know, you always, you just, you should, I don't feel like you should ever feel like you're there. I feel like you should constantly be attempting to improve whatever you do. And, um, I just don't feel like as any kind of artist, we're ever done. And I think he gets that. And I think that he is, is for himself. He wants to, he wants to learn from what he's done and, and move on and do better. And he's making a conscious effort to do that. And it shows, it shows. And, and I applaud him for that. I love this guy. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, what we will do, me and you, is when Cold in July finally comes out in a, a capacity that we can both see it, I would love to, and I don't know necessarily, obviously it has has elements in it which would maybe bring it into the horror genre, but I, even if it is not classed as a horror, if you want to come back on and do that film, I would love to do that. I would be honoured, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to discuss it with anyone else. Fantastic. So, um, before I do my usual ring of shout-outs to, to all my podcast pals, um, there has been quite a lot of activity on the Facebook page, and I recently said that if people are posting on the page, I will I will speak about it on this podcast, and I will also welcome some new additions to our group. So, I'd like to welcome Kyle Miller, who come across. Um, Kyle has been listening to the podcast for, for a wee while, I think, um, and he come right in and has already taken part in her... Um, our first part of the recommendation for the next Basvi Horror. Um, he He's a wee bit cruel, though, because he put up Martyrs, but Martyrs has already been mentioned, so Baz is in for a bit of a good time. Uh, not. Um, <laughs> Mim's, Mim's been quite active on the, the Facebook page. Uh, she, oh, Mim, I'm going to name and shame you on this podcast here. Um, she had basically admitted publicly on our page and I you know if you've got something you want to share on our page even if it is quite embarrassing you should share it that she may have thought that Wreck was a oh I remake, saw that yeah a remake of Quarantine um, and I forgave her that because she went and watched Wreck however I didn't realise that in America there is a dubbed version of Wreck which blows my mind um, I've never thought, seen it I know it exists but I refuse to watch it well, unfortunately, that was the one that Mim saw, so Rick didn't really grab her as much as it probably should have, but she openly admits that herself and has said that she will now shout from the mountain that she knows that Rick was the original. Um, Alex Seeley has come across. Um, he is another one who has been listening to the show, enjoys it, um, and we want to welcome him over. Uh, Spencer's been quite active as well. He's been chatting away at me. He's a really nice guy. And Jonathan Dibble has also just recently joined, um, and he uh, got involved pretty quickly on the on the, the debate of what Baz should watch in his uh, French extremism uh, by putting forward um, inside, which is what I'm personally rooting for. Uh, that that's is my, my that's my vote. That was that's what I want. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think he deserves that. But Alex had also <laughs> Alex uh, see, were so nice to us. Um, had put forward that he he said he knows it isn't horror, but um, irreversible is French and it's extreme and hard to watch. And I would totally agree with that. That rape sequence in Irreversible is probably one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever watched in cinema. It's such um, a good movie. It really fucking is. I think that... So I think good. That time period, see see that, like, five, six years in French cinema is just... It's, it's such a statement 
to you know the rest of the world that French cinema is vital, important, and can deliver you know not only visually stunning films but brutal. Um, you know the brutality that they can put on screen is just incredible. So no, I love. Um, yeah, no, I know, I know you, I know you're a fan. <laughs> so um, we will obviously uh, today uh, marks the last day of putting up the name suggestions. What we will be doing is for the next week we'll be running an official poll with all the films mentioned. So um, if you listen to the podcast and it is, you basically have the next week to to go and put your suggestions in. Um, Tick what one you want Baz to see and then we'll put the Baz through his paces and see how he gets on. Um, you'll be happy to know, Jamie, that he did enjoy Videodrome, though. Yay! It was the first time he'd ever seen it and he picked up pretty much all the social commentary that was going on and how far ahead of his, of its time it was. He did he really enjoy that. And I, I thought you'd appreciate that because I know how much you love that film. Yeah. I want to so, I want to see if you guys have hit the same points that I do whenever I discuss that film because... I was I a really good discussions about that movie and just seeing where people go with it. Yeah, well, it was a previous, it was a previous podcast, and it's the only film we discussed. It's quite a short episode. It's about an hour and thirty long, so um, you should check it out definitely. Um, but yeah, so uh, thanks for everyone on the Facebook page making things very interesting for me. Uh, I always love reading your comments, so keep them coming. And like I said before, if you're not on the page, come over to the page. Um, Let's do some shout out. So, massive shout out to obviously Jamie Jenkins and Devourer the Podcast, um, who just dropped their second year anniversary show. Um, and it was a blinder, and I guested on that one, which was a lot of fun. You were um, amazing. Thank, oh, thank you so you. much. We love you I so much. Really enjoyed it. It was an honor to, to, to come on and ask some questions, and it was, it was hugely entertaining. So, everyone should check that out. Um, obviously. There's there's loads going on just now. Um, I think you're about to appear on Graveshift Radio, isn't that right? Well, you know, I was going to, but I haven't talked to them again about, and I don't know if they may have already recorded that episode. It was going to be for the uh, Hellraiser the finale. Yeah, I don't. So I don't know. I haven't talked to them, but um, sometime soon. That's what they yeah. keep saying, and that's what I keep saying, and. <laughs> It's going to happen eventually. <laughs> so, yeah, um, well, big shout out to them anyway. Ryan's a, a, a gent. Me and him have plenty of conversations online. He's really nice. And I'm so glad that they're finally getting to the end of their Hellraiser retrospective. So, so <laughs> there is light at, yeah, light at the end of the tunnel. Um, massive shout out to Skeleton Crew. Um, obviously, Jamie's part of the Skeleton Crew. And Evil Episodes, because Jamie's on Evil Episodes as well. Um, uh, huge shout out to um, the guys over at Banana Laser, who are still going through their Saw retrospective. It's been really good. And Terra Dome are currently doing their Friday the 13th retrospective. Um, the podcast on Haunted Hill, they've just released their new episodes, so people should be checking them out. Um, and obviously, my man... Gary Hill, um, and I think we can now officially announce um, I will be um, taking part in a new segment on Cinema Beef. Um, every episode, uh, he, he basically cornered me and said, do you want to come on and do a show about some of the early Twilight Zone episodes? And I had to admit... Um, oh, I heard about this. An embarrassing Poor fact. shame. Yeah, I I remember seeing quite. A, I have seen the occasional old one. I've obviously seen the the infamous Shatner one. There's something on the wing, um, but uh, I've I've seen some of the. I'm sure did it not get rebooted in the eighties? Yes. 
Yes, well, I've seen some of them, but I've never seen I've never seen the original. So, um, on Cinema Beefs coming up, I will me and Gary will be talking about three episodes at a time on up and coming ones. So you should all check it out. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun and educational for me because I've not seen them and they've been on my list for years. So um, looking forward to that. So, but you should check out his stuff on Cinema Beef and Sausage Fest reviews. And obviously, I couldn't leave without mentioning my guys over at the Midnight Horror Show. Um, it is my hope and intention to have the fantastic Mark over on my next episode as a guest host to discuss Big Bad Wolves. Um, and I think he's going to be joined by The Baz and Dave from Rock and Reel as well. Um, and we're, we're going to discuss that film. But I love those guys. And I should be appearing on their show uh, fairly soon for the second time. Um for a secret project which I can't talk about just now but I'll tell you Jamie when we go off air (laughs) Um, yeah so um, I really have nothing else to say except thank you very much for checking out the podcast under the stairs Um, as always we love our listeners and um, thank you very much Jamie Jenkins for coming on and taking part in the the show that you've now named as a Miko Mania uh, or the Miko Marathon so uh, thank you very much again Jamie yep thanks again for having me love you sweetie yeah love you too and this is the perfect time for you to do your patented bye Jamie bye Jamie (laughs) and I'll speak to you all very soon from under the stairs take care bye